A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Andor Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our season wrap-up podcast for season one of Star Wars Andor on Disney+. Plus. In this episode, we're going to be talking uh, briefly about our overall thoughts on the season, and then we're going to have an extended conversation with Anthony Ladon from the Electric Bookaloo and Double Dragon podcasts on the Bald Move Network. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andoratthelorehounds.com, and we will get to it on our coverage of Tales of the Jedi, which will drop in December. And if you want to continue the conversation with us in real time, we have a dedicated Star Wars channel in the Bald Move Discord, and each show and episode has our own moderated thread, so you can jump in at any time without having to worry about spoilers if you're still catching up. If you're enjoying our coverage of Andor or any of the other shows we're covering, and you'd like to support us directly, Head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the lorehounds. For just $3 a month, you can subscribe today and get early and ad-free access to every episode of our podcasts. And if you can help us play Apple Podcasts' mysterious game of who's in the rankings, please take a moment and rate and review our podcast. It really helps more people find us, uh, which helps us make more podcasts. Over on HBO, we're covering The White Lotus, the latest creation from Mike White, and we're really enjoying that show. Look for our podcasts with full coverage every Wednesday. Also, the first episode of our new series, Silmarillion Stories, has just been released, and we get into the details of Tolkien's creation myth of the Ainul Indelay. That's in our feeds now, and in December, we'll be covering the Valenquenta. All right, David, before we introduce Anthony, what are your general thoughts on this season? I am still tracking this to be one of the best series of seasons of television that I've ever seen. I think um, this season is cutting across genres. It's doing really good work in terms of editing and sound design. I really find the construction of the season, the way that Gilroy paired up a director and a writer to cover a set number of episodes, you know, be it one, two, or three episodes. I think we had a, a mix of all, of all of that this, this time around. And I, and I know that they're going into, I've heard that they're going into season two, where it's going to be four, three episode arcs. 
that are going to cover the next four years of uh, Cassian's life that's going to uh, connect us up to the train car that is uh, Rogue One. I can't think of another show that's done television production in this way. I think it's really innovative. I think it's really cool. And I'm really excited to see this model extend beyond um, Andor. And I don't know, I just, when I start to put all of those elements together, it, this show is just rating very, very high on my uh, favorite all-time shows. Uh, so, I don't know, that's, that's where I'm at. I've, I've got to watch it again. I got to do a, a series rewatch as well. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough time because of the holidays to be able to get a full season rewatch before uh, doing the season wrap podcast. But who knows, you know, maybe we'll talk about it on our uh, second breakfast uh, Patreon exclusive or maybe chat a little bit about it in uh, when we cover Tales of the Jedi uh, in December. I don't know. What'd you think? So you were lukewarm on it, huh? <laughs> I am. I'm a Gilroy stan now, man. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go back and watch his entire filmography to see the DNA of, of like what he put into the show. Like, what did you put into my head, Tony Gilroy? I, I want to understand this. Well, I mean, I loved it, and I did not expect to. It's funny because, you know, I went into House of the Dragon fan bankrupt. I've, I've made that uh -huh. very public as I was, I was very fan bankrupt for Game of Thrones. Right. And that just, you know, surprised me and surpassed my expectations. Right. And then Rings of Power, I went in cautiously optimistic, and that, um, let's say it didn't get there. Uh-huh. Now I, again, I enjoyed it, but it it just didn't really live up to uh, what I the quality that I thought it should have been. Right. Then Andor comes in, and I hadn't even watched Mandalorian because I had Star Wars fatigue long ago. And uh, again, I, I stated at the beginning of this podcast that I have been a casual Star Star Wars fan the whole time. You know, I've never gone deep into the books. I've read the Dark Plagueis <laughs> book a while ago. And now you only watch Star Wars. That's, now I, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I make the joke, but I am watching a lot of Star Wars right now. And right. Uh, I'm watching Rebels. I plan to start Clone Wars after that. And, and I'm just, I can't get enough of this universe right now. And the mm -hmm. only reason I have that enthusiasm is because of Andor and because Andor showed me that there is promise in the stories that this uni universe has to tell. And it's mm -hmm. not just going to be a straight up good and evil battle every single time like it is in the original trilogy in the prequel trilogy in the sequel trilogy right um and and i just feel like this lived up to the promise of a star wars for grown-ups and that yeah. that is really excellent because you know for a while because i i guess you know i grew up with the prequel trilogy yep which uh you can pray for me later <laughs> But for a while, I felt like I almost missed the boat on being like a diehard Star Wars fan because mm -hmm. I had friends who were really into it the way I was into Harry Potter as a kid, the way I was into to, um, Tolkien as a young adult. And they just had this love for it that I just didn't have, you know, this uh, this obsession almost, but in a good way. Like they just they knew every detail. They knew where to look. They knew which rocks to turn over. And I just didn't have that, and I thought I missed the boat. And mm. I just feel like this show has breathed new life into my mm. passion for Star Wars. Resurrection. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, on that note, I think it's safe to say we both liked it. Yeah. We're really excited to keep uh, covering this show when it comes back. That might not be until 2024, but we've got a ton of Star Wars coming. I mean, we're going we're gonna to definitely cover Ahsoka. 
Um, we may cover some parts of the Bad Batch of Mandalorian uh, and and uh, definitely the Acolyte when that comes out, because I'm really interested in that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even next month, we're covering Tales of the Jedi. I'm really excited to have that conversation with you. Yep. But on that note, I think it's time that we turn the conversation over to Maester Anthony. What do you say? But wait, John, there's more. We have a bonus conversation that we're going to stick at the end of this podcast. Our friend Marilyn R. Pukila has also watched Andor and was really excited by it and really enjoyed it. And um, so we got to have a, a quick opportunity to have a conversation with her as well. Um, so that is exciting because we get some really interesting takes from her. I think we talk about the hero's journey a little bit, um, tie in some Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, and a few other things. Uh, so look for that at the end of, is this a post, should we do a post credit scene? Should we reveal the, uh, <laughs> no, no, really not for Marilyn. She's, she's, she'll be great, uh, in the main section, you know, she's okay. gotta, she's gotta be within the credits. Right. Uh, you know, you know, we got we gotta we gotta get all our exodus takes. We gotta, we gotta be in, leal uh, here. Yeah, we we're the lealest. That's right. Uh but I will say that our conversation with Anthony was pretty rocking. I had a really good time and and I think we talked about some interesting stuff, like is Star Wars really science fiction? Um, you know, how much are we prisoners of the moment and just enjoying the show because it's doing something neat and cool or does it really have legs and is this going to really go down as a all-time great TV show um and so i think a lot of our our big meta season wrap um thoughts and feelings get uh, covered in both of these conversations if you're not familiar with Anthony Ladon he runs two podcasts on the Bald Move network Electric Bookaloo which is a George R R Martin Song of Ice and Fire read along. He's currently reading Clash of Kings, and uh, you can look for that on the Bald Move Game of Thrones feed. And then he also has uh, Double Dragon, where they were covering um, House of the Dragon as it was uh, live. And he's also got his own uh, side podcast, which is Cocoons of Horror, um, at, where him and his podcast buddy Steve. Um, cover old horror movies and some other uh, genre picks like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more of his content. I'm really glad he reached out to us to talk to us. And um, here's that interview. All right, Maester Anthony, welcome to the Lorehounds. Great to have you uh, over here on, uh, on this podcast. We're looking forward to hopping over to you. I, I'm excited about this because, as you know, I kind of invited myself onto this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got <laughs> we got the email, and you're like, "I got to talk about Andor, man. I got to talk about Andor, man." <laughs> yeah, no, I I've been I've been appreciating uh, your coverage of oh, thank you a lot of what you're doing. I'm I'm especially interested in the Silmarillion stuff. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, we should the- have you on that too, as well. Well, it's been a while since I've uh, I've dug right. in, but I it, it's always a fun little uh, vacation whenever I get to vi- <laughs> visit Middle Earth. Um, but today is uh, is Andor. I'm I'm really excited about Andor. All about it. Um, so, do you have like a what's your overall take on the on the season? You had a good time with it. I take it. I did, and I'll be honest. I feel like I try to postpone 
like I'm trying to postpone my hype a little bit. Uh-huh. Cause my I think my, my knee jerk reaction is to say best Star Wars content since Empire Strikes Back, you know? Sure. Um and then I there's a little part of me that thinks Prisoner of the moment, maybe I should wait for five mm-hmm. years and look back and think, did, was it really a Breaking Bad kind of, you know, uh, up there in that Breaking Bad territory? Right. Um, so I'm going to wait on this, but I'm saying I'm enjoying this show, especially episodes about four to 11. Mm-hmm. I felt like I enjoyed this show as much as I've enjoyed anything. Right. So it's it's I it's it's been a it's been a revelation this show. Yeah. That week to week excitement, like I can't wait until Wednesday. Like I'm gonna wake up at <laughs> you know, six AM and yeah. uh watch the episode on my laptop the first thing I you know, I'm gonna open my eyes and watch the episode. Uh I haven't felt that myself in a in a long time. Yeah, yeah. It it is that kind of show. What yeah. about you guys? What do you think in in terms of like I don't know. Let's just talk about like the present moment. Mm. Uh, you know, of all the shows that you've watched, let's say in the last, let's say since the beginning of the pandemic, um, where would this rank in the last three years or so? John, do you want to? Oh boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> oh boy, I watched a, re- a lot of reality TV at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, so that's go- mm-hmm. that's going right at the bottom. That's the that's the uh, foundation. <laughs> of this pyramid Uh, (laughs) but if we if we edge our way up here i think that it's definitely near the top if not at the top it's 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 really excellent it's certainly the best star wars tv show i don't know if it is better than the original trilogy it is better than the prequels i'm i'm certain uh it is better than most of what the the sequel trilogy had to offer Mm mm-hmm as far as other shows in the pandemic, I mean, you know, we were big on Rings of Power. I have my issues with it, and I've said my piece with mm-hmm. that, and I'm hoping that season two is better, but so far it didn't wow me, um, mm-hmm. other than the visuals. And then House of the Dragon is the other big heavy hitter here. I would say I liked Andor more than I liked House of the Dragon, even though I liked House of the Dragon a lot. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, it's certainly... Andor is an interesting show in my mind because I do feel like I want to spend more time with these particular characters. I, I feel like mm-hmm. these, these, man, this, this, and and maybe this sort of jumps the gun a little bit, but I do feel like there are there are a few characters that were ancillary to the story that I'm absolutely fascinated with. I would absolutely spend some more time with those characters. And some of those characters came and went. Like, some of those characters are just dead dead. <laughs> Give know? us some names, you know? Uh... <laughs> okay. Uh, shoot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blink. We, we'll, uh, we can help you out. Okay. If you're, who's, describe okay them. Who's the dude in the heist narrative who claims he has Mimic. a brother who does not have a brother? Uh, Skeen. Skeen. Oh yeah, yeah Skeen. Yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. gosh, that guy was. Ki- I mean, that I I could watch yeah. that guy all day long. <laughs> I I felt like his performance in those what three episodes were dynamite. I abs- and then of course I'm not a big Andy Cir- Circus fan. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I I don't like Andy Circus. Shade like- Andy. 
after after I think Gollum Smeagol broke his brain at one <laughs> <laughs> But I loved him in this. I, I thought he was mm-hmm. fantastic mm-hmm. in this. Uh so th- those are characters that are probably not coming back, right? So right. No. Yeah. And yeah. I thought those were fantastic characters. Uh Mon Mothma, I think, is the most interesting storyline of the whole show. Yes. I, mm-hmm. I would like to spend more time with her. And then of course, you know, uh Luthen is is I, I think carrying a lot of the emotional weight of this of this episode. Mm-hmm. What, what about you, David? Um, if you could rank this against other shows in the last three years, what what would you say? I was uh, as John was going through his list a little bit. Um, I'm like deeply scrambling. I'm trying to remember all that I have seen <laughs> uh, since the yeah. pandemic. There are three though that are just strong and float mm-hmm. out, float above all the rest. And that was the Queen's Gambit. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Station Eleven. Yeah, and then that final season of Better Call Saul. I'm going to put Severance in the mix. Uh, I liked Severance a lot, but it's not. It didn't give me the same feels really? as those other three. Oh yeah. no, I Severance was well, up there in the top. It's good television, but I'm just saying for me and my, you know, my soul, um, Queen's Gambit and Station Eleven were just like I was like, what is this that I'm yeah. watching? Holy shit. I can't stop watching this. I need it all in my veins now. And then Better Call Saul, I I just loved I, I was on it from from uh season one. And one of the things that I really loved, which a lot of people didn't really appreciate, was the pacing of the episodes and the seasons. Mm. And I loved the visual the use of music. And the visual language of Better Saul Call, yeah, I really loved the constructions of those episodes. Yeah. There was a scene uh, early on, I think it was season one, and Mike is breaking into the house of the people that uh, Saul was trying to, uh, it was the, the woman who was like the county assessor or something like that, or the husband who was mm-hmm. the county assessor. And they play this funky tune, this instrumental tune. <laughs> and it just rocked me because here's Mike doing a super stealth thing, and then they're hitting it with this funky vibe, and this this great little set sequence of shots yeah. I, I, from a construction standpoint, uh-huh. just a, a a visual construction. I love. Okay. Um, and so I've been with Better Call Saul uh, from that. Okay. Moment. Here's I, I here's my trouble. Let me let me just <clears> throw <throat> this at you. Okay. So go for it. Go go go. These are the I, I make. I've got a little list. I make a note of yes. a show that I like when I find it because I think there's just so but, much content that gets thrown at you. All right, so uh, I, here are the shows that I really liked. The Bear. Did you watch The Bear? Yes, that was so. Good. We own this city. That was a revelation. That was good. Uh-huh. Barry, Severance, Stranger Things, For All Mankind, The Old Man, Station Eleven, and Chinko. Tokyo Vice. Pachinko. Oh, yeah. God's yeah, yeah. favorite Pachinko. idiot. Reservation Dogs. Love Reservation Dogs, by the way. Dave Dopesick, Raised by Wolves, mm. Winning Time, Better Call Saul, Succession. Um, th- th- these are all amazing shows. And I feel like as I'm watching them, I'm thinking, oh, this has got to be my top five. And so when, mm-hmm. I, when I hit Andor, I start to think, oh, this has got to be my top five. But then I pause and think, well, right. there's about 15 shows that I could say that about. And I didn't I haven't even mentioned uh, you know, House of the Dragon. So mm. anyway, all that is to say that I I think we need a little bit of distance 
from this show, but I, I'm not, I won't be surprised if Andor ends up holding up against some of these other ones. I think for me, where Andor comes in is in where it comes in, where it leads a lot of the other pack is that the way that Gilroy constructed the season and the way that we know that season two is going to go down, where um, he was building these little mm -hmm. arcs, he was pairing a director with a writer. Um, you know, they broke the, the 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 overall arc down and then handed it off to these different writers and directors that the production design was in and on mm -hmm, every meeting, mm -hmm. the sound design as well. And for me, I think part of my exuberance for this show is in how they did that construction. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that Episodes one through three were one thing. Episodes four, five, and six were another thing. You know, each little mm -hmm. block uh, had its own vibe, its own mm -hmm. tone, its own music. And that, for me, was a, a, a revelation in TV. Making. Yeah, I, it, was a it was certainly a master class. The, the, it, yeah. in the I, I think in the same vein that something like Better Call Saul, you know, mm -hmm. really, you know, there wasn't a lost... You know, every every frame was thoughtfully constructed, right? Absolutely. There was it wasn't like ah throwaway. There was there was a little bit of had kind of a soft middle. Could have gotten that bottle episode. We could have gotten rid of. It would have made no difference. Mm -hmm. No, I I felt like this show really really was attention to detail, framing. You know, just uh, just little things like you know when to not use music. I mean, you don't think about that very often. But when to not use music is sometimes as important as when you do use music, right? Yes. Because yeah. there was a lot of shows that, like, I think I just saw Wakanda Forever or something. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go see it tomorrow with my spouse. Well, I won't say much about it. I will say that sometimes I, I felt like, just tone down the score just a tiny bit. You know? I felt that let's, way about Rings of Power. Same thing. Rings of Power, sure. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Same yeah. thing. So, um, yeah, sometimes those little things, it's like... Or transitions, or you know, is it, you know, what, how how to piece together a scene, when when to sort of leave a character out of an episode is interesting to me. When to introduce mm -hmm. it, uh, all of those things, I was very impressed with. Well, there were details like, oh, sorry, John, I'll, I'll just two really quick visual details. Um, there was a scene when after Mon Moth, we first have Mon Mothma and Luthen together, and she's flying off. And they've got a close-up on uh, Stellan Skarsgård's uh -huh. face. And his eyes track the trajectory of her ship leaving, <laughs> even though we're locked in on him. Or there's the scene just in 12 where she's sitting in the limo, and we're looking through the side of the limo at her face onto the steps of the place where uh -huh. they're having, you know, wherever they're at their party coming down. On the side of the limo, you can see tiny little streaks of light moving along the side of the of the limo mm. because they're the reflections of the traffic that's flying around on the sky streets of Coruscant. Right, right. Like that level of detail is. I, I, I think I, mu I must have missed both of those details, but I, will, I, I when I rewatch, I'll absolutely look for those. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then scene transitions. Yeah, like I. I could go on for days about those. Anyway, John, I, I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, I was going back to one of the more big picture topics, which is just like, why does this show hold up? And why do I think it will stand at the test of time is 
it didn't rely on two things that are extremely popular in TV right now, mystery boxes and, quote, subverting expectations. It does not rely on reveals to build drama. Instead, it builds a character slowly. And I use this word on the season 12, on the episode 12 podcast. Everything in the finale was inevitable. There was nothing that happened that was shocking in this finale. Interesting. It was all built up to. It was all natural. And there wasn't a mystery box. It's funny that you say that because I was listening to an interview with uh, Tony Gilroy and he said, well, there's two kinds of inevitability. Did you hear this interview? No. Which so one he's was he's absolutely podcast? tracking with you. Ah, oh, gosh, I forget which podcast it was. was. It and, and do you really or... want me to give it? <laughs> yeah, we t- uh, we pull from other podcasts. Do you really want time. me to give it uh, advertising <laughs> for you? <laughs> yeah, you know what? He was in, he was interviewed and he said, "Well, yes, inevitable, but there's inevitability that ends with a period, and there's inevitability that ends with an exclamation point." And that was a great way to say that because, yes, inevitable, but if, if, it, if it ends with a period and not an exclamation point, then it feels like, well, I saw that coming, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. It, and, but it felt inevitable for the characters, but not necessarily for the plot. You know what I mean? It didn't feel like somebody was writing a plot that needed to get from A to B. Mm. It felt like Cassian needed to go save Bix because that's who Cassian is at this point. Mm. Mm. Yep. Interesting. Yep. And he has to go see Luthen at the end because that's who he is. He's got no more choices. All right. I, this he can is either be hunted by about. the Empire or he could be hunted by the Empire or he yeah. can, and he could be hunted by Luthen. His, his peoples are safe. Uh-huh. Um, where, where is he at? There's only one choice left. There's only the inevitability okay. of it. Go. But yeah, I, bring I, it. This, is, this brings me to the topic that I'm most interested to talk about. Get, get your take on it. Cool. Right, so here we go. Normally, with character development, especially with sort of hero's journey kind of stories, Mm -hmm. you meet a character who is fairly passive, and that character arcs toward agency. Okay, yep. And you can name a hundred, you could name several hundred movies that do the same, do this thing. At the end of the story, they are actualized as a person. They're able to right. choose the right thing, or they're able to make the right choice, or they're able to make a choice that saves someone. At the end of the story, they have agency, and that provides the audience a sense of adventure, a sense of catharsis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the audience vicariously has agency, right? Right. Can you think of another show? Where the main character goes from agency to complete passivity. Cassian Andor starts by this, he's a roguish guy who's Mm -hmm. basically, Mm -hmm. he doesn't follow anyone's rules, he's He's a hustler. hustler. He's he's somewhat selfish or whatever, but Mm -hmm. boy does this guy have agency. Mm -hmm. He makes a decision in the first episode to kill a guard, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. He makes that decision. That decision shows that this guy writes his own ticket. Right. He's hard-boiled, and he's a, yes. he knows all the angles. That's right. And when he calculates an angle, he takes action. Ultimate agency. By the end of the show, what does he say? Kill me or take me in? No agency. That is the <laughs> ultimate <laughs> gesture of passivity. 
I love this. I yeah. cannot um, I cannot think of another show, another story even, where a a character has gone from complete agency to complete passivity. So I guess maybe let's start with the premise of like do you agree with that reading? Mhm. And then number number 2, can you think of another kind of story that does that? The Wheel of Time. Not the main character. But there's a point it in has the wheel to be of a main character that I can't. Okay, it's a very important character. It has to but, be a main uh, character. I, I can't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I can't think of anything. I'm gonna. I, I love the angle on this because it's it's a totally fresh perspective on, on my part. Uh, you know that that I have not calculated this thought at all. Um, and I think you definitely have something here. But the thing that comes to my mind. In that, it's that Cassian's becoming a leader. So that, and, and I don't think many shows do this. I don't think, I don't, I can't think of another show that has shown us a character with this kind of journey. And I've, I pointed this out a couple of times in our, in our coverage, um, that this is also a show that has given us character beats Mon Mothma, Luthen, mm. and Cassian, mm -hmm. and Vel to some degree, who have crippling, near crippling uh, uncertainty and self-doubt mm -hmm. to the point that they are questioning themselves so deeply that, um, uh, that it could affect what actions they take next mm -hmm. in the storyline. And, and I think of, you know, some MCU movies or other movies, we get the heroes having some self-doubt and they have some mm -hmm. sort of superficial intellectual conversation mm -hmm. with a friend or trusted person. They work through a couple of the issues, they put on the cape, they put on the helmet, they fly off and then they save the world, right? The, it, it, it means nothing. The conversation actually means nothing. With these characters, they go through such um, uh, penetrating uh, um, doubt that near cripples them, hmm. and then they re then, but yet they take action. They resolve it somehow. Hmm. They you know they have a friend say something to them or whatever. So I think in the way that you're talking about uh, uh, Cassian going from ultimate agency to to this other kind of agency, because I still think he has agency, but it's a, in a different guise. Um, we don't see that. I, I think you're absolutely right. Our normal trajectory is going to agency. And that, and with this, 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 uh, this critical self-doubt thing, I don't think we've ever seen a mm. show mm. go into this territory. Maybe did Mad Men do this? Did uh, I don't think Breaking Bad did. Well, here's the thing: we only have the first season of this, right? Yeah, right. But as far as like a, a character from episode one to the most recent episode, I mean, and and we jumped the gun just a little bit here into point to you know. What happens to Andor and Rogue One? Right. right? So, yeah. so we see this trajectory. We see him on a trajectory to mm -hmm. total self-sacrifice, total right. an emptying of ego. I think that that's just another way mm. to say a shooing agency. Mm -hmm. At the end of it, I mean, he might be suicidal. You know, you know, kill me, kill me, or take me in. But mm -hmm. he's what he's telling Luthen is, I'm yours. I'm your man. You can right. decide what to do with me. You have the agency. And it's, al it's almost like he, 
I I don't want to even call it a different kind of agency. I mean, I guess he does choose to go to Luthen, right? Well, he, I mean, that's a choice. He, so let me bring it back to the the topic of leadership. Um, I can think of the the scene. There's two th- scenes that jump out in, in my mind. One during the prison escape, and then another one when they're on the the cliff. Uh, him and uh, Melshi are on the cliff. Mm-hmm. Melshi's like, "Stop saying that." He's le- and he goes, "You know, I my my fingers hurt. I can't feel my hands." And Cassian's like, yeah, I heard you. Like, I understand what you're going through. I'm yeah. going through it too. I, I hear you. Yeah. But he doesn't bully Melshi. He doesn't say, he doesn't try to pump him up it's a good, or his ego. It's a, it's a good leadership model, right? Right. Yeah. And I then, hear and, you. I hear you. I got it. Right. And then when Melshi says, tell me again that they're leaving, mm-hmm. he's, he says it, right? He gives him what he needs. When um, uh, uh, Kino is talking into the mic, and yeah. Cassian goes, that's all you got? Brother, you got to bring, I've heard you say this speech, you know, uh, you know, uh, what's yeah. the position that they got to go into uh, on program. I've heard you on call program, on program yeah. and new man on the floor a dozen times. Mm-hmm. I know you got it. Bring it, brother. And then, of course, he uses Cassian's line to inspire everybody. You know, I'd rather right. be dead than to, to, you know, I'd rather die fighting than, mm-hmm. you know, than, than giving it to him. So to me, that's the, that's the kind of person Cassian is, is that he can inspire other people. He can become, he can, the more he reduces his self, his ego, as you say, that, that selflessness when mm-hmm. he dies on the beach, the more that he can get to zero of his own ego, the more space he creates around him mm-hmm. for all these other people to take the heroic actions they need to take to actually have the rebellion. Yeah, interesting, interesting. But I agree that the traditional arc is is go from zero agency to to hundred percent agency, and that's why I think this show is going somewhere. We, mm-hmm. to me, is is still on track for being one of the best television shows I've ever watched in my life. Is because he's not using a, a cheap trick of subverting expectation, mm. but he's actually giving us something that's very authentic and very true to our own lived experiences. Okay, but wouldn't it be crazy if, like, every episode of season two had a different reveal that a different person was a Jedi? <laughs> wouldn't that be insane? I, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in. I had a call with John Favreau before, and he said, uh, "Yeah, not enough action figures in this show." And uh, we, it's not we toygenic enough. In here. It's not. You know, it's funny enough. that you say that because I was not a big fan, and I plan on rewatching for sure. But I was not a big fan of Rogue One, and okay. so. And one of the things that I said about it after I watched it, I've only, only seen it once, is to say that I tune into Star Wars because I like to see people discover the Force. Mm. That's, that's what draws me in. I would like to see a budding Jedi. I want to see... That, that's what makes that world magical in my mind. And the way that they brought Force into Rogue One was very unsatisfying to me. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I kind of feel like if they decide to bring in a force sensitive character into this world, I will not be disappointed. They have to do it well. They have to do it well. And I and I trust that they will do it well. And everything I've seen has has led to that trust, but um I I wouldn't be disappointed. I wouldn't be disappointed. If they did it, and I think that the way that you do it, if you want to do it, is you you introduce it as a season finale 
you know, like the, like the first season of Game of Thrones. You know, you don't see dragons until the mm-hmm. last scene right. of the last episode, right? Right. I think that's the way you should do it, I, because otherwise, you know, if if Anakin Skywalker comes, <laughs> shows up, <laughs> there's no contest. Like uh, the, the stakes are completely changed, right? The other way that you could do it, I think, is to create. Um, to not to make sure that it's not one of the quote unquote good guys who's force sensitive, either a gray character or a Sith or something like that. I think that 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 doesn't ruin the stakes for our heroes. That that's that's my feeling anyway. I would love it if Luthen were a force sensitive character who just was not trained by the Jedi, but sort of picked up some tricks along the way of his rebellion. There's a couple hints, and, right? Uh, There's is, a couple is, hints. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Big time coding. Yeah. I think that'd be super cool. Yep. Sky crystal, <laughs> laser beams coming out of a ship, uh, that weird staff thing he has. Yep. Yeah. They're, the cloak, you know, uh-huh. standing on that unguarded, uh, that, that walkway with no rails on mm-hmm. either side of it. It's all coding of, of, for C stuff. Okay, let, this brings me into my next question. I've got a question for both of you guys. Okay. The original Star Wars, I've always read as a fantasy narrative. I don't see it as sci-fi. I see. I, 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 what, makes, what makes that universe unique is the magic, right? Right. It's like magic using samurai or something. Right. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. And it's not in the future. It's not futuristic. It's, it's a galaxy... You know, it's long, long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it really leans into the fantasy. I think it's probably a merger of the two, but I think it's more fantasy than it is sci-fi. Is Andor the first true science fiction in the Star Wars catalog? Ooh. Hmm. That's an interesting question. John? I mean, Rogue One is is borderline, but you do still have Vader. You've got Vader and... at the end. You've got the Force-sensitive uh, characters. I do... I, yes. I, I, I feel like I'm watching science fiction when I'm watching this show. Mm-hmm. I do not feel like mm-hmm. I'm watching fantasy. Right. I thought it felt more like a, a standard drama, like more in the vein of uh, a Breaking Bad than in the vein of a... a science fiction or hmm, fantasy at all what, what about what about you david i view um a new hope uh actually more as a fairy tale <laughs> than yeah. a fantasy okay right um, you know and you're going all jr tolkien yeah <laughs> all right if tolkien you know? has a has criteria for this yeah if yeah. it's a fairy story there have to be elves mm-hmm. right that, that's his criteria he says if you if, you, if it's gonna Jawas. be a fairy <laughs> <laughs> all right all right go yeah uh yeah. but you know it's a it's a princess and a dragon right and uh and a hero mm-hmm. right you know and it's still still fantasy right because we have yeah, you yeah. know samurai and uh knight you know we have knights mm-hmm. uh you know jedi and all that kind of stuff but i'm trying to think for me sci-fi has always been about like like that Star Trek thing, right? Like take transporters and warp drive and then mm-hmm. like now let's exam let's let's work through issues and questions of morality and and this kind of stuff. And I suppose that Andor is I'm trying to think of um I can't the the prequels and the second set of films for me are just so problematic in terms of the literature of Star Wars mm. 
John's doing Rebels right now. Oh, yeah. I'm watching Rebels. We're having a great time over here on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> um, I kind of feel like my, my sense with the original trilogy is that it absolutely is a fantasy narrative, but it's disguised as a science fiction. Mm-hmm. This, I feel like... You're probably right. It's, it's probably more of like a spy narrative disguised as a sci-fi or something like that. But I do feel like, like there are certain elements of this story that have like like it's a really interesting depiction of torture that I've never seen in yeah. a show before. Oh my god! Yeah. What is the the premise to that? Is that you've got this race of people who have some kind of psychic ability, right? Audi- yeah, it's, a, it's an audio thing that yeah, yeah. messes with the human the, brain. They I don't emit know if this something at a particular frequency. Yeah. Um, and then they've weaponized the, the audio of that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it has some kind of psychological torture effect. That, to me, is a very interesting sci-fi story. That's a good point. I agree with that. Or the or the you know the whole the whole prison culture element where you're just being mm-hmm. the prisoners are just being transferred but they're given just a little bit of just a morsel of hope, you know. <laughs> it's like right. It's very Vonnegut. Y- yes. It's very like classic sci-fi. Yes. Yep. And then and the you know the 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 floors, the the hot floors or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yep. Very inter- very interesting sci-fi concept. Mhm. I would even add this with the uh, post-credit scene where we get confirmation of what they're building yeah, yeah, yeah. is the Death Star. So all of all of that, what's happening in world is in service to. I mean, the Empire needs massive amounts of resources to be able to create this super. Right, right, right. And that's part of what's being drawn in around the galaxy is all these resources. And so that's very sci-fi because the Death Star is sci-fi, right? Right. Like a, a moon-sized super weapon. Like, how more sci-fi? <laughs> well, and the whole, the whole setting is a bureaucracy, right? It's, this is, mm-hmm. it, it's this massive bureaucracy of the Empire where we're actually seeing how big the Empire is. Yes, yes. And how how soulless the, the entire thing is and mm-hmm. how much, you know, how many lives are lost just in the red tape and just the, the, the banality of evil, all of that yep. business is baked into this. So it really kind of gives you a dystopian feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a trope that sci-fi likes to play with as well. Right, right. right. It, it kind of reminds me of the process of how the Black Company was written, where, so this is, it seems like a sci-fi show from a guy who is not a huge sci-fi fan. And so he's pulling from influences that are outside of Hmm. sci-fi, right? And he's pulling from his uh, born identity stuff. He's pulling from spy thriller stuff. And he's making a sci-fi show in the style of a spy thriller. Whereas you look at the, the Black Company, that's a fantasy book written in the style of war journals. Hmm. And that sort of made it have a different color than a lot of the other fantasy works at the same time. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. I'm going to have to check that out. It's very cool. If you like, I mean, you, I know you like A Song of Ice and Fire, so it's, it's very uh, a, a similar level of like grimdark, mm. but the style is just so different because it's written 
as the annals of this mercenary company Interesting. And, and of the person basically like taking a journal and taking a, down the histories. And anyway, the point is it's, it's just pulling these techniques that actually come from different genres and bringing them to this genre that create these interesting mm -hmm. molds out of this story. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back. I'm going to throw another ingredient into the soup here. And again, uh, I'm going to use this conversation and what we're what the topics that we're talking about here as a personal evidence for why this is still one of the best shows that I've ever seen. Because if it's cross-cutting genres like this and doing it successfully, that's pretty special in, in my opinion. Um, and one of the other elements is noir. And not noir, you know, with the fedora and the trench coat and a, you know, a Maltese Falcon mm -hmm. statue kind of thing. But noir in the sense that you have a character who is aware of how the world works and is functioning within that game, mm -hmm. playing that game within that world. And then suddenly that world opens up in some way and that character suddenly discovers mm -hmm. the horror that the game that he's been playing is only a very small part of a much larger and much mm -hmm. more deadly game. And so for that transition of the character to go from this ignorance to this awareness, and then the, the, the realization of how big the, the rest of this is going on, that for me is a, 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 an element that I really enjoy from mm -hmm. noir, mm -hmm. you know, pieces of noir work. And so when we get Cassian, you know, being taken to Narkina 5 and he realizes the extent of what's really going on here, mm. he's hard-boiled, right? He knows how to operate. He can throw a punch. He can shoot a blaster and, you know, and he can hustle some credits. He knows how his little world works. And suddenly he's thrown mm. into a much bigger and much more deadly world and survives it and uh, actually um, uh, uh, wins some of that mm. game, mm. if you will. Let me... All right, let me throw this at you. I don't know if this is something you guys care to think about, but I've seen droids in every Star Wars story that I, I've watched, right? I've seen I've seen droids. Mm-hmm, yeah. These droids have varying levels of emotion, right? And I've never given a second thought to it. I just thought, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of it's fun that, uh, you know, that... C-3PO misses R2-D2 or whatever. I never stopped to think, right? how would a droid be programmed to have an emotion like that? But because the show leans into the real in a way that other Star Wars shows haven't, I'm starting to ask questions like, okay, I don't understand how B2 is, has emotion at all. Like, how do you... How how does in other words how does B two is is that the right name for this droid B two? Yeah, B two emo. B two seems to experience authentic grief in this show. Mm -hmm. He experiences, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, grief presupposes that you have a memory that is either heightened or 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 has mm -hmm. gaps. 
And th- and mm-hmm. then, of course, those memories dissipate over time because you go through the irregular patterns of life, and that memory gets categorized in a different way, and you can you can deal with your grief because the human mind is imperfect. You can you can go back, hmm. you, you know, you okay. can go back and start living your life again. You go back to the patterns that you go to. Right. Fundamentally, a synthetic droid doesn't have yes perfect should fidelity. not have a sense of grief that is the same in other words let me let me frame this in a way that makes more sense if if a droid has grief it should be the same level of grief today as it will be 10 years from now because that droid's memory is pristine it doesn't degrade over time i and these are the kinds of questions that i'm asking about <laughs> A, a very ancillary character in the show because the show <laughs> is so good, right? I would have never mm-hmm. stopped to think about that in a different kind of Star Wars show, but because this show has raised the bar, now I think that we need to have some of these other kinds of conversations. Yeah. Right. I think I saw something on Reddit where the canon answer to why do some droids have more emotion than others is in this universe, the longer a droid is conscious without being wiped, uh, the more emotional and the more human-like they get because of their interactions with humans. Uh-huh. And then that's why the routine thing, especially for you know people like the Empire, mm-hmm. is just wipe the droid every every few <laughs> months to years. Whereas uh, B two Emo presumably has been with Marva for how many years? Yeah, and is basically just her son now. So I guess one way you could get at it, if you want to, if you, I mean, otherwise, it's, otherwise you're just programming these droids to mimic human emotion, right? But mm-hmm. one, another way to do this is to say, no, B2 has the kind of mind that has to prioritize memory, mm-hmm. right? So maybe, maybe B2 is in a situation where it's like, okay, the day after Marva dies, my grief memories get prioritized as number one, but in three years from now, those will still be there, but they'll have a lower priority. And maybe, so maybe the droid does that by, I don't know how the droid does that, but eventually what will happen is you'll have to overwrite that data because <laughs> you only have a, a limited amount of space, right? So that, it, these are interesting questions that, that I don't feel like Maybe the show didn't really want me to ask those questions, but that's because the show is so good. I am asking those questions. But that's isn't that yeah. science fiction? Doesn't that go to your point I about is right. this a science fiction I th- I Star Wars right. show? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how this element will tie into the this conversation about B two, but something that jumps to mind is in one of those early episodes, Cassian says to B two, he says, "Can you do a lie for <laughs> right. me?" <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, do you yeah, have enough power? Have enough do you power have enough for one lie, but not electrical lies, charge? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, oh, like it wait takes a, a lot. It takes a lot to construct a lie, right? To process. And is that true? Isn't that true psychologically for our human psychology yep. that a lie? And that's why they tell you, they mm-hmm. tell you, not me, um, that if you're going to lie, lie as close to the truth as possible. Because that way, when you recall it later, I watched too many, you know, detective shows or something that I heard this, that you'll, uh, that it's less likely that you'll screw up on the lie when you're retelling it uh, down the road. It's, it's a fascinating problem because 
if he's just mimicking human behavior, then the lie shouldn't have any more or less consequence than any other statement that the, that the robot says, right? So it, it mm-hmm. does actually kind of lean into the, no, these droids, they have something very close to human emotions that they're experiencing, right? Right. Yeah. Do you think, a uh, question for you, Anthony, um, being a, a critical viewer and being, you know, cri- you know uh, a person who is uh, bringing an academic level of critique, right, to your work uh, and what you do and analyzing the show, how do you feel about the deployment of B2 as this emotional dimension to the storyline? Yeah, I'll be honest. I started I started asking these questions, and I don't think the show really wanted me to be going in that direction. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start asking meta questions like that, maybe you're not as invested in the story that they're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. The first couple episodes of the show, I was a little. I was kind of like, mm, I, I'm interested. I, I think this has potential. Mm-hmm. I'll re- I'll go further. You know, this is a solid B minus show, and this is more than I would have expected. Right. So because it, it so, right. superseded my expectations, I was willing to go forward. It wasn't until about episode four that I was like, "Wow, what am I watching?" <laughs> And at that point, B2 was out of the narrative <laughs> for the most part, right? Okay. Now, of course, they, br- right. they bring him in a little bit later as well. But I was not all that interested in Cassian's relationship with the droid or relationship with his mother. Because right, that's a standard yes. Star Wars uh, yeah, uh, yeah, plot yeah, yeah. device, isn't it? The sidekick, you know, the hero. But I'll tell and you what, as droid, far as but... academic, viewing this thing critically or academically, now that I've seen the mother, the various mother-child relationships that have been introduced in this show, I'm interested mm. in going and rewatching those first episodes again. Because there's a, mm. a very interesting mothers and children dynamic in this show. You've got, uh, what, what's the name of the the bureaucrat that wants to, you know, be all in on the Empire... Deidre? Dedra, sorry. No, not Dedra. The guy. Oh, Karn. Oh, uh, Karn. Karn's Karn. A, Cyril Karn. His, <laughs> Cyril. That's right. Cyril. <laughs> Cyril's relationship with his money. <laughs> we haven't even touched on Cyril, have we? Yet? Cyril's relationship with his mother is, <laughs> is just breathtaking. I mean, those two are just like you just see like this guy's a budding serial killer. You know, this guy, this guy has a psych, like total psycho relationship with his mother. Um, so you got that, and then of course you've got, of course you've got Mon Mothma's relationship and some of the choices she has to make. You know, does does she give her chi- Does she give her daughter what sh- her daughter wants? Because it's politically advantageous. It's a very complicated problem. That's actually right? really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because before, when, bef- when Skulldoon first says, well, I just want a, uh, a meeting, we hadn't mm-hmm. yet had that scene with the daughter doing That's the, right. you know, reading the Now the, we know she's super traditional, the, the and she are. might be and open she wants to this. an early marriage yeah. in the tradition of her people, right? Have you heard the good yeah, word of the yeah. worm drink? 
<laughs> is, wait a second. Is, are, are people now? I'm off social media entirely. I don't know what's been going on online. Is there an actual drink that people have created for this? Oh, I haven't seen. Oh, I thought but, you were. Uh, I thought you were like, yeah, you can buy this now. You can buy. <laughs> <laughs> I think John's positing that some on some corners of the internet, uh-huh, yes, uh-huh. this is happening. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess all that is to say that now that I know that that's a theme, right? It's the the role mm. of mothers and children is now a d- definitive theme in this show. Now that I've seen yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm now I'm curious to go back and rewatch some of those Marva Cassian scenes. Yeah, right. Very interesting because she's more than his mother, right? I mean, she's she's his savior. She's somebody who literally took him from his lowest point and gave him a life somewhere else. Yes, and at the end of the finale, she does. She's almost um, channeling both <laughs> Princess Leia and Obi Wan, right? Because right. she's speaking yep. from the grave, yep. right? Yep. Yeah. That 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 yeah, yeah that's in the right. holographic that's what, form. That's what Obi Wan did. He he was able to speak mm-hmm. beyond from beyond the grave, and 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 provide wisdom from beyond the grave, not just like being really mm-hmm. spooky or whatever, mm-hmm. but also in in addition to that, sort of setting setting a great battle in motion by way of hologram, which is of course brings us back to yeah, that's right, Leia, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's interesting in this episode, we have Cassian in a kind of um, Mr. <laughs> Scrooge role here where he's visited by oh, three ghosts of the past. Go- wait, who are they? Who are the ghosts? <laughs> Clem. Wait, Clem. Wait, wait, who's Clem? Nemec. That's his dad. Clem is yeah. his father. So he goes to that brick and then oh, has, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah, first yeah. voiceover. Okay. Yeah. And then we cut to the scene of him cleaning uh-huh. some unused equipment. Um, so that's his father. Father, so if you go back to that first episode where they're when they when they sure. abduct, they literally abduct uh, Gazian. He's the guy that's saying like, "Hey, right, we got to right, right. get out of here because the Republic yeah. soldiers are coming." And then he's the one who's hanged by the Empire when he's trying to like calm some a situation mm. in the street. And then they he turns around and all the mm-hmm. troopers are looking at him. And then so that's sort of Cassian's first, you know, um, that's the, the sort ghost of, of Christmas past first push and. <laughs> Yeah, and then so you've then you've got Nemec, right? Who's his sort of, you know, who's written a manifesto and is speaking to him through the book. Right. Um, you know, the the have you heard the word of Nemec? Have you you know read the new? Right. Oh no, he's way more Karl of, uh, Marx than uh, than uh, <laughs> proselytizer. I mean, come on, right? And then we have um, uh, Marva, you know, speaking uh, out of the head of a droid. Very interesting. I like yeah. that a lot. And then it brings him to mm-hmm. his wholeness, right? And then he can, once he is able to make sure all the remaining people in his mm-hmm. life are safe, um, he then is left in that you know naked state where he can go to Luthen and, and actually give mm-hmm. a real choice, right? He has, okay, well, here's an inversion. I'm just thinking this now. There's an inversion. That's ultimate agency, isn't it? To surrender yourself to something beyond you. Yeah, I would say that's but that's a clever way of saying that he has no agency. I mean, that, to me, that that that's okay. sort of him. All right, he is making a choice. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, he's making mm-hmm. the he's making a choice to have no agency, right? right. So to be used by something, yeah, as opposed to use, yeah, which is a little bit 
I don't know. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. I, to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that I'm like, like, yeah, I believe that Luthen would was absolutely going to kill it, Cassian. Like, yeah, like that fits totally. with his character. Yep. That everything I know about that character, who's been created with meticulous detail. Mm-hmm. Everything I know about him would lead me to believe that he's the kind of guy that will kill Cassian. In a heartbeat. Even though he thinks Cassian actually might be a very valuable asset, right? So there, there's a little bit of a twang of like, I guess I feel a little bit reluctant to root for that character knowing that he's going to kill the main character, right? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very honest portrayal of a revolutionary. I feel like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and because of that, because revolutionaries are violent by nature, because of course, most of society will not agree with what the revolutionary is doing. Right. These are usually gray characters, right? And so I I feel I feel that conflict when I'm watching the finale in that way. Mm-hmm. But of course. I got to I got to see season 2. So I, mean, I, yeah. I got I got to go back. I got to see what happens, right? Well, I mean, I made this point on the uh, episode 12 podcast, but basically I don't think that Luthen would have hesitated at all to shoot Cassian if he had not heard Marva's speech and known that that was Cassian's mother and mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. understood that it's possible that his other conflicting motivation, which is I need all the heroes I can get, could be fulfilled by Cassian Andor. Because I, I don't think that he saw Cassian as a potential hero even in the first three episodes. I think that he was like, okay, this guy's a great thief. I have a heist going on. He's a tool I can use. But when he hears Marva's speech and when he sees, you know, the the gravity, the gravitas mm. of Cassidy mm. of Cassian, he really, I think, had to hear Cassian out at the end. And Cassian didn't have much to say, as as is uh, part of the course with him. But once he did get it out, Luthen's like, oh, yeah, this is a tasty meal I got in front of me. This is just exactly what I told uh, that ISB agent I need. Okay, I'm going to push back a little bit here, all right? So try this on okay. for size. I think, it's, I think it's actually a lot darker than this. I think everything you said about Luthen's position the first part of the season was spot on. He saw Cassian as a tool. I need all the mm-hmm. heroes I can get. This guy, I know he uh, can I'll pilot. Call back, call back to the line of, um, has there ever been a uh, weapon that uh, yes. no one has ever used? That's right. right? right. Yeah. yeah. So Cassian's a tool. He's the right tool for the right job. I need, a, I've got mm-hmm. a heist. He's a thief, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of it, is he bowled over by the speech or does he view Cassian as a different kind of tool? In other words, n- this is sort of this inciting moment. Everyone, everyone on this planet probably is going to view Cassian in heroic terms because of what his mother said. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to play the game of real politic, I can't kill this guy who now can be useful. In a different way. So I'm not saying that he's gone like from viewing him as a tool to viewing him as sort of this heroic leader. I'm saying he was a tool, but now he's a different kind of tool, and I can use that kind of tool too. Sure. Well, I'd say that Luthen sees all 
heroes even that he would call as tools. Right. I don't think that he would make that distinction. I, you, even. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that for sure. So I'll throw this into the mix. What is Luthen's personae, his public personae? A collector of rare objects, <laughs> a collector of highly yeah. valuable things. Yeah, right. He knows value when he sees it. Yeah. And he knows, oh yeah, this is a nice stone. This is an exceptional stone. Well, and yes, okay. he knows how to value tools, right? Right. Yeah, they might and, be ancient tools, but, but they're things, absolutely tools or weapons or whatever, right? Sure. Right. And and he his shop is filled with unique objects from around uh -huh. time, you know, from over time and around the galaxy. Yeah, yeah. And so I go back to a scene for me in my head canon, I go back to a scene where Clea, his assistant, is challenging him and saying, You're asleep, wake up. You know, you you're you're slipping, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're getting sloppy right, here. Right. And to me, what and that happens right after Cassian goes off the grid. Yeah, yeah. And um, to me, okay, the, there's a surface uh, analysis you could apply there. Luthen's worried that Cassian knows too much and could be a danger to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But I also, in my head canon, feel that Luthen recognizes that there is something extraordinary about Cassian. It may not be emergent yet. But there was something unique about this man and that he doesn't have that, he doesn't possess that tool that's bothering him. Mm -hmm. And that's that's giving him some, you know, concern and some angst because like, wait a minute, that I this guy, if okay, if I had if I had a wrench, mm -hmm. that'd be really useful. But I got like a hyper-dimensional spanning wrench that can you yeah. know, do all this other crazy <laughs> stuff. That would be an extraordinary tool to be able to to use in what I'm trying to cook up here. Right. Well, I think that soldiers in this rebellion are a dime a dozen, but Cassian is something different. Clearly, yeah. because yeah, 30 I mean, Krieger, plus Krieger. Yeah, gone, you know, gone. Yeah. And as a collector, you never throw away something of value unless mm -mm -mm. unless yep. throwing it away gets you something else of value. Like he's willing to throw away Krieger's life yep. because he's trading. He's basically saying, I know I'm gonna trade a million dollars, but I'm gonna get ten million dollars. Right. Yep. So I'm I it's that I'm never gonna see that million again, but I got I got <laughs> I got something else on the other side of this that will balance the ledgers and maybe be even more valuable. Right, and of course now he's making the same measurement of of and uh, of of Cassian, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we know what ultimately Cassian buys, which is the Death Star plans. Oh, I, I got to revisit this. <laughs> I got to revisit the film. All right, have you guys? Have, when's the last time you guys watched that film? Oh, years ago for me. I uh, I, I got to rewatch it now too. Maybe a year and a half, two years, but it's, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what's your favorite Star Wars movie mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever. And, and it's very, you know, uh, it's very trite. It's very simple to say, oh, Rogue One, you know, outside the of the Phantom Menace. John, <laughs> don't do it. Don't go there. Um, well, no, don't go there with the uh, Rise of Skywalker. No, that's true. The last, the last Jedi. Anyway. I, um, I already burned my my own bridge by saying I like The Last Jedi, but, uh, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> the thing that, and I want to, because a lot of people just throw that out, oh yeah, Rogue One is the best, but why? And I think the why goes back to some of what we've been talking about, which is 
that it wasn't a fairy tale. It wasn't uh, space samurai magic using mm-hmm, wizard mm-hmm. types. Um, it was gritty, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, all the character, you know, all the characters that we cared about died because it represents one of the things that we're getting the juice that we're getting out of a lot of people are getting is um, out of Andor, which is that it is speaking to our authentic human experiences. We can understand these sacrifices. Mm. I can't understand the sacrifice of a Jedi. I don't have metachlorines, <laughs> right? Mm. I don't have a, 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 a samurai laser sword, right? Well, um, on top of that, being a Jedi is about being throwing off all emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And throwing off your family. Throwing like it's, off it's, family mm. relations, throwing off emotions. Mm-hmm. Who can relate to this? I mean, I know a few people that might be able to relate to that, but I, I, I can't, right? It's always right. when it's always when Luke is the most emotional that I connect with him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when he's being least like a Jedi. Right. Yeah, Han Solo is always the character for me, and he's a very emotional guy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never identified with Luke personally. Well, I think that that was the promise of The Last Jedi, if there was one, was, Mm -hmm. you know, Luke saying, maybe the Jedi Order was the wrong way. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe this this monastic religion Mm -hmm. wasn't really doing the job of balancing the Force. And maybe we do need to have more of a gray outlook on life Mm -hmm. to be able to live more fully and be more in line with the natural path. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. And Mm. I can't wait to see how they conclude that. And then they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's interesting because I've never thought of The Last Jedi in those terms. I was just so offended by all of the the bad cinema, the bad filmmaking, Uh, Mm. you know, the 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 mockingness of. You know, just this the stupid sort of uh, fart joke at the beginning. Well, it's not even a fart joke, but you know, just the the dumb humor yeah. of yeah. of um, of uh, calling you know the the des- or the the big ship commander um, and like you know playing that stupid telephone game thing with him and the whole oh, casino yeah. stuff yeah. and like it just it just okay uh, it didn't work for me on that level. Do you guys both have kids? Yes. Uh, yes. How old? Two. I got a seven year old. My kids were seven and 10 when these shows came out. Mm-hmm. I have a much different relationship with these films mm-hmm. because my kids were the optimal age to experience right. Right. someone like Ray for the first time, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. So just, just at a very base level, like these, are these movies built for a 40 year old man? No, probably not. Mm-hmm. They're probably built for a 10 to 13 year old kid. Right. And so unless you kind of can put on those glasses, which is easy for me because I had kids that age, mm-hmm. right? you're not going to experience the way that it's intended to be experienced. With Andor, That's a good point. I feel like Andor is, is absolutely built for a 40-year-old man, right? So yeah. this, for me, like the way, if I was going to like sum it up, I would say Andor begins with the ethic of Han shot first. Yep. Doesn't deny it, doesn't try to remaster it, leans into it. Now let's create a series where that's, th- that's sort of the guiding ethic. Yep. 
I'm to, I'm all in. I'm all that. That's the show I want to watch, right? <laughs> that's right. Not yeah. necessarily the show that that my you know that my my kids are going to be all that interested in, but I'm totally going to be interested in it. Well, I'll, I'll say this about kids media is Rebels is clearly made for kids, mm-hmm. you know, and that you know it's an animated series. There's the violence is very PG. But the plot lines make so much more sense than the sequel trilogy. (laughs) It just amazes me that it came out of the same company. Because it's just, you can make media for kids that still make sense. And, you know, the best movies that are for kids appeal to adults, too, because they are coherent. And because they do say something bigger than just, like, laughs and giggles. I I totally agree. It's sort of, you know, this is uh, the the Tolkien Lewis... uh, line on children's fiction like <laughs> there's not there's no such thing as children's fiction right there's fiction and if it's written well it can be uh, it can be enjoyed by any anyone of any age right i think there's limits to that view but that was their view on it right and so for me a, a you know a, a book like the hobbit is still gratifying to me you know as an adult um and i honestly like I, I probably will go back and rewatch, you know, some of some of those sequel movies, and probably appreciate them in the same way. But it, but there will be an element of nostalgia that colors my opinion in the same way I have nostalgia of the original trilogy because I was that age, right? Right. So then I, I'll look back on on the sort of the emergence of Rey as a Jedi. And I'll have nostalgia for watching that with my daughter for the first time. So again, very subjective stuff, but that's that's what film is, right? Right. And I I mean, I just had a conversation in the Bald Move Discord the other day about how, you know, somebody said, well, why are you watching the prequel films? I was like, because I was 10 years old when, uh, or I was 12 years old when uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith came out. Like, it's just, it was in my childhood. It's still fun for me. I won't defend the quality of them. Except Revenge of the Sith was pretty good. It it had a lot of memeable moments, but um, it, it uh, I wouldn't I won't defend the quality of the trilogy as a whole. But it's just a lot of fun to go revisit something from your childhood. It is something I wanted to say about Rogue One and that whole you know um, age thing and what you know what what interests a fourteen or fifteen year old and what interests a you know uh, an older person. And one of the things that I loved about Rogue One is when Darth Vader does show up and he does wreck shop, Mm -hmm. how utterly terrifying that moment is. So here's all these, you know, space troopers with their pew Mm -hmm. pew guns. And suddenly there's this dark shadow that is, you know, flinging people around, force choking them, you know, burning through their, you know, their bulkhead doors. Mm -hmm. And just killing absolutely anyone and everyone who's standing in his way. Whereas from the first movie, because it has that fairy tale mm-hmm. fantasy quality, we're all, you know, we're, and we've seen all of them, we're primed and we're ready for the fact that there are these, you know, these wizards, these old, you know, space wizards floating around and there's this Jedi Order thing and da 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 da. So all of the Star Wars main movies, mainline movies, all traffic in. Use of force, force sensitivity, all of that kind of stuff. And Rogue One, I think, was the first movie to expose us to the horror that if I showed up in Dayton or in, you know in 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 Albany or wherever mm-hmm. you know 
and I started doing some of that stuff, people would lose their damn minds. They would freak the F out because being able to levitate stuff and use this magic sword is, is, is so abnormal mm -hmm. that it would be terrifying. And so seeing Darth Vader um, terrorize these people and completely, you know, demolish mm. everything that's thrown at him. That was the first time I think that I was a, uh, awoken to the the fact that, oh yeah, this is a potent force. Where all the time before we've been just been oh like well the yeah you've cast it against cool thing. A, the relief of a world that's devoid of wizards, right? Right. So if you cast right. it against that relief, then when a wizard shows up, and let's be honest, like the most iconic wizard in the history of film, right? <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 like maybe, maybe in the top five villains of mm -hmm. all of film history. Right. right? Absolutely. When yeah. that guy shows up, now you see him in, in his true, just, just breathtakingly evil self, right? So... Yeah. And he's at the height of his powers uh, in Rogue yeah, One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He's he's fully functional in his suit. He's fully come into his yeah, yeah. evil pow power, you know. And there's uh, no there's no Jedi to to nope, to to counter. You know, to counter him. There's him, no right? blue lightsaber, you know, there to, you know, you know, do the reverse on him. Yeah. Okay, I got one more question for you guys and then I'll I'll, you know, give it over to you. You guys can end it or whatever. But here's my question. What's one thing about season two that would be, that would most kind of, we either be most gratifying or um, most exciting? What's a storyline that you'd like to see in season two? All right. I got something. Go ahead. Luthen's dem demise I, or something to do with Luthen and. Because we don't see Luthen again, Rogue One going forward, right? Like he's not there. I mean, obviously we have a uh, a scripting timeline thing that like nobody conceived of Luthen, you know, mm. prior, right? So there's that. Taking that into account, assuming then that Luthen doesn't make it out of season two, I want to see what Luthen's trajectory is here. I mean, I can think of a dozen different things: Mon Mothma, Vel, and Cinta. Uh, yeah, you know, but he, for so, you, he's he's the he's the sauce. You you you're really looking for him because of that speech that he yeah, gave. Yeah. What episode was that? I'm like oh, such a blur on the episodes. Was that 11 or 10? I think it was 10. Yeah, 10. Yeah, that's right. It was 10 because of of what he laid down in 10. You know that I burn my decency for a sunrise that I will never see. Mm -hmm. Right? I you know I'm I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy yeah. you know i yearn to be a savior but there's no ground below me like this whole question of this this man who wrote an equation i want to know yeah. what that 15 years ago we've got some listener feedback about timelines and how that might lay out i want to maybe i want to know how he's constructed or maybe i want to know how he gets deconstructed hmm. But I think that is some some spicy sauce uh, right there, mm. and that's a hard choice because Mon Mothma also yeah. has my heart yeah. in a lot of ways. What about you, John? If I could get one scene of Dedra and Karn eating cereal with his mother, <laughs> I'll be happy. 
<laughs> such an <laughs> if that's the whole of season two is just breakfast scenes i would be pretty happy okay but I, on a more serious note i want to see saw guerrera be the wild card that he is mm. and i want to see it go horribly wrong because mm. we always see these rogues who they're like oh man you're wild and then like everything mm. they do mm. turns to gold and they succeed at everything no i want this wild card to fail spectacularly <laughs> in a way that is is magnificently done <laughs> mm. and so that so that's what i'm looking forward to and then you know I, i'd love to see how he you know, retains his post in the rebellion and how he, mm. you know, makes his way to Rogue One. But I want him to have like a completely botched operation. Hmm. That'd be dope. Yep. Wow. Anthony? Yeah, I think I think it's got to be Mon Mothma for me. I feel like I'm um, good. I'm glad one of us picked I, Mon Mothma. She, th- to me, that's the most interesting part of the story. She's an amazing actor. The just the levels of. The level her problems have problems, right? It's like <laughs> it's like she's she's dealing with just a, an onion of problems, and every single layer of the onion has a different sense of loyalty, or a different sense of like motherhood's on one level, and her relationship with her own religion and culture is on one level, and her her hatred for the empire is on another level. Whatever this vow is. That's yeah, on another yeah, level. Yeah. I want to know how yeah. deep the vow goes. You know, the, mm-hmm. all of that business with her daughter is just, to me, that's like Game of Thrones, Better Call Saul mm. level of intrigue. Yeah. I got to see what and happens. As a parent, it cuts differently too, right? Yep. Like to make those kinds of choices that involve your kids. Yep. Woo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm yeah. really looking forward to this show. I, do, you, do you guys know when season two comes out? Sounds like 2024, probably late in the year. Okay. Yeah, news, uh, word on the street is they just started filming principal photography like a week or two ago. Mm, okay. In London, okay. or, you know, in, in England. And so, yeah, I think what John has the right of it, which is, you know, because they've got it after they finish, it's got to go to post. And IL, I think ILM is doing all of the special effects for it. Mm-hmm. So I think we're looking late 2024 at, at best case. Interesting. What a great, what a great show. So everything is coming back in 2024, <laughs> which is just for podcasters like us is really just a, a brutal situation mm-hmm. that we, we will be bored for a year and then we will come back and we will do marathon of house of the dragon rings of power and or. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be like scraping at stuff, trying to like cover. And yeah. At least you've got Bukaloo. Yeah. Bukaloo and, um, Cocoon. Steve and I have a, a a show where we just review old movies. Oh, nice. cool! Cocoons of horror. I haven't heard people want to check okay. it out. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of horror film, like classic horror film. But then we'll we'll throw in like a Teen Wolf two every now and again. Uh, just yeah, you know, I'd be down for some obscure sci-fi, like things like Dark Star and Silent Running. You know what? Nice. We just did They Live. I don't know if that if that oh, appeals yeah. to you. Yeah, we just did that. Is, that. that is um, totally awesome. Anyway, th- I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> there you go. It was my <laughs> first, one of the all-time best It lines. was my first viewing. See, I, I was never a horror fan growing up. Sure. Yeah. And Steve is really into horror, and so- Okay. Um, but he's always into it for like, what's the most funny thing about the horror film? So I've been re- I've been watching some of these these classic Evil like Dead. I just watched Evil Dead two for the first time, yes. mm-hmm. a farewell to arms. So Did you I, catch yes. that one, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So I just watched it for the first time, and then 
you know, he'll, he'll, it'll be like his 20th time that he's seen it. Right. And so then we'll, we'll talk about that. So yeah, uh, Bukaloo, uh, we're going through Clash of Kings and Cocoons. We're, we're doing a season of sequels. So nice. Nice. I go, going on. Nice. Where can people find you? They cannot. I'm a ghost. I'm not, I'm not online. <laughs> uh, if they want to email me, I'm at book at baldmove.com. Otherwise, uh, I, I, I deleted Facebook. I have, I have no Twitter presence at all. I don't do Instagram. And you know what? I'm living blissfully. I'm, I'm living a real <laughs> authentic life with that, without all of that. That, uh, have you been watching uh, White Lotus at all? I have not, but I, I, I mean to. It's, you know, it's, it's on the queue or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so, so both in season one and in season two, there's um, one character in each season that are struggling with their, you know, their self-identity related to uh-huh. social media right. and mobile phones and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Look, Elon doesn't realize that we're not in here with him. He's in here with us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Guys, Sue, a lot of fun. Lo- love the show. Um, love both um, Andor and the Lorehounds. Um, you guys have really enhanced that experience for me. I appreciate it. Great. That is no, awesome. thank you very much, Anthony. I'm, I'm really liking uh, the Bookaloo podcast. I'm, I can't wait to check out some of your, uh, your Cocoon of Horrors. Yeah. Uh, is that, did I say that right? Cocoons. Yeah, Cocoons of Horror. It's, it's the worst name ever because people can't spell Cocoon and they can't say horror. <laughs> Oh boy, <laughs> the Ruger. If you're a and we're um, we're scheduled to come over to Bukalu with you probably sometime in January. So we'll definitely let people know when. Yeah, we absolutely. Have a date picked. Yeah, out. we'll we'll uh, yeah give them a shout out, and then of course um, that'll be it'll be in a month or two or something like that. Well, we should definitely um, talk to you too about uh, the Silmarillion stories and have you uh, come on because we've got Would John's got it. a big outline for that. And uh, we should look for some other opportunities when we can kick some stuff around when we have these big season, you know, finales or other super interesting things to talk about. I, I'm, uh, I'm always game. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Thanks, cool. Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. All right, John, that was a pretty awesome interview with Anthony. Uh, I really enjoyed having that chat with him. And I'm excited to go on Electric Bookaloo in uh, January to cover a chapter of A Clash of Kings with him. Okay, and now we've got our interview with Librarian Emerita, Marilyn R. Pukila. You may remember Marilyn from our Rings of Power coverage. Uh, she's taught Tolkien uh, for many years at Colby College and is somebody who's really conversant in mythology and uh, academic literature, and we really love talking with her and getting her takes uh, from her perspective. So here's that interview with Marilyn R. Pukila. Marilyn, it is so good to have you back. How have you been? I've been great, and it's wonderful to be back. There's just so much going on right now, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, we were uh, trying to figure out a way to have you come back on. I know you were a little cool on Andor, but we prodded you a little bit. And yeah. uh, it seems like you uh, uh, in, you guys really enjoyed it. You guys had a good time with it. Yes. Well, it was a combination of your guys' recommendation, but also my very dearest friend and heart sister who introduced me to Tolkien. And 
also, of course, we both saw Star Wars together, the original Star Wars in yes. 1977. Yep. Um, and, you know, so voices that I trust, and I thought, all right, well, let's give it a try. And yeah, definitely hooked in um, the first three episodes. Got a little less happy with it. The, the torture scenes were really very hard for me. And so I right. kind of pulled back emotionally somewhat. Sure. And so I wasn't fully open to all the resonances because um, I mm -hmm. wasn't, I could no longer trust where they were taking me. I okay. guess it's probably the best way for me to put that. Mm -hmm. um, but I liked the, you know, the, the whole prison thing and the break from prison right. and so forth. And right. episode 12 just knocked it out of the park for me. Oh, that's great. It, it, it redeemed it for me, basically. And I said, okay, right. this is Star Wars. This is what I look for and expect to see in a Star Wars with it. I mean, hope. Hope yeah. is like the quintessential element. And I'm sorry, I just didn't see hope. I saw anger. I saw revenge. I saw uh -huh. um, bitterness. Um, and, you know, having Marva be that pivotal character. Yeah, throughout the whole series was was just right. wonderful. It really and was she was not in it that much. Like if we if we talk about her screen time, yeah, it's pretty minimal. But yet her impact is outsized, just like her hologram was sort of right. outsized. It was ginormous. Right, right. <laughs> well, she has so, an even more ginormous impact size, which I will talk about when we get to one of the, our themes for the conversation today. Right. So you've got a couple of uh, angles for us to consider. Um, I know we were kind of kicking around some ideas with some stuff around the hero's journey, but you've got some other thoughts. So what are some, a couple of the other themes that we might touch on? Uh, well, we had talked in about- In broad. In broad, looking at the, the ways that people often turn to their traditional cultures in times of stress. Uh-huh. And there was some political stuff from Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed that I saw okay. some clear tie-ins with, but I don't know if Sounds we'll have good. time for that or not, so- what did you think of Cassian's journey uh, so far? Uh, well, may I talk about the hero's journey arc? You may. <laughs> Please. Proceed. <laughs> so, John named him the reluctant hero, and you're absolutely right. Um, though, if you think about it, Luke was the reluctant hero, too, early mm -hmm. on in his journey. It's a good trope. It's a, it's a tried and true method. Well, it is. The, you know, also called the Manos myth compiled by Joseph Campbell. It's yep. somewhat reductionist. Um, yeah. You know, he kind of chops off some cultural bits <laughs> to fit it into what he eventually came up with as his pattern. Mm. And it's definitely West-centric, um, yes. even though he tried to claim it was a worldwide thing. And it's like, nah, let's pull back from that. Having said that, as you say, John, it's absolutely incredibly useful as a tool to look at um, different stories in from any medium. And so, he created this pattern, which consists of these different stages. So, I can read all the stages first, if you like, and then I can see, name the tie-ins that I see, or um, I can just go well, through and name just, the tie-ins yeah, Why don't you focus in on the tie-ins, and, and, and we could maybe link, I'm, I'm sure we could find a, a source or two that we could link in the show notes if people want to dig deeper on oh, yeah. all of the individual... Uh, um, stages of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is actually a reduction of the yeah. more elaborate schema that he laid out. So, it starts with the call to adventure, and I think we see that in young Cassian when he's, Cassa, when he's following the, the elder kids. Yeah, right, yeah. When the, yep. you know, this thing has crashed on their planet, what is it? And mm -hmm. he wasn't invited to go along, but he did anyway. I loved how, too, in that whole sequence, A, they never gave us subtitles. 
Right. We could divine everything that we needed from the interactions. Mm -hmm. And it was so clear that the part of the group didn't want him to come along. He was still too right. junior or a little outsidey, even for a group of outsiders mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. as they were. Um, but it was a really brilliant sequence. I had the sense he might not have gone through his, his ritual manhood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He might have been you know, on his, the that, young side. That ritual thing. So right. there might have been yeah. something that they had created for themselves to in indicate that rite of passage. So the next step on the journey is what is called supernatural aid. Uh -huh. And I see that as Marva and Clem showing up mm, because okay. their technology, you know, the old Arthur C. Clarke statement about any any technology that you can't expand it looks like magic right um so they could certainly be seen as supernatural aid to a young cassia who you know mm -hmm. just not seen anything like this and then the hero has to cross the threshold and encounter guardians and i think for cassian as we see his journey there was probably things prior to this but in the story we see it's the murder of the security guards in the very first episode Mm. Oh, that's interesting. The threshold oh, that's a cool that he analysis. crosses. Yeah. And he, that's and what he literally crosses an, uh, a threshold because he's got to walk that right. causeway over the water and then enter into this zone which he doesn't belong in. That's right. That's right. He's not even a corporate employee. He's a complete outsider to that world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, very good. And, and who does he confront? Guards or yeah. guardians. Right. You know, they're not necessarily functioning in a traditional guardian role, but. You know, works for me. And then the next phase is the hero encountering various mentors, helpers, and challenges. And mm. this, of course, is Luthen, Val, and the team. Yeah. And Nemec. the heist. Yeah. The heist. Yeah. Nemec. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Then you get the abyss. What do you suppose the abyss might be? <laughs> <laughs> Narkita 5. That's Niamos, right? Right. right. <laughs> Niamos, yes. There you go. Space Miami is an abyss. Uh, I'll definitely go with that. <laughs> well, the Space Miami is one type of abyss, but Narkita yes. 5 is certainly. <laughs> certainly. And even the, even the prison design descends down exactly right and the water exactly. is being sucked down so you're going uh, to the underworld resonates yep yep and and they take away all your sense of individuality they mm -hmm. put you in a uniform you can't even wear shoes you have flavorless food uh you're reduced to a number on a on a dial that it is actually meaningless in the end mm -hmm. so yeah no i see exactly what you're saying there marilyn mm -hmm. then we have death and rebirth mm -hmm. which of course is the escape Prior to the escape, the rebirth, he has already accepted death. Right. 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 He says, you know, we're probably all going to die, but let's at least die trying. Right. And then the rebirth, of course, is when they do manage to escape. Can I just stick a little bit of headcanon in here? Please. We're all about headcanon. I'm really hopeful that um, his fellow prisoners encouraged Kino to take the plunge. <laughs> flipped him on his back, told him how to float, and dragged him off. I really want right. to see that character again. <laughs> It'd be such a waste of Andy Serkis if they don't bring him mm. back. But I realized that might not happen. Okay, so after the death and rebirth point, you have the point of transformation slash atonement. That would be the news of Marva's death. Mm -hmm. And this is what it's called. Yeah. Return to the community. Aha, uh -huh. yes. <laughs> Which is exactly what happens, but it gets better. Uh, with the return to the community comes 
the gift of the goddess. And if that isn't Marva's speech, right. I don't know what is. Right. In, in a very ethereal form. Yes. In a very non-substantial form. She yes. is literally just a, words from a dead person from mm -hmm. beyond. In a, in a form that's shimmering and sort of mm -hmm. larger than life. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's very goddess-like. Because the goddess also always appears in white. Aha. <laughs> so, yet another confirmation. Right. And of course, she's, um, in a sense, she's been his goddess all his life. Right. right. Yeah, she, because she, she was technologically him. superior to him and rescued mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gave him new life. Right. And his mother, so often the mm -hmm. goddess is a mother goddess, which is then um, followed by the new call, and the cycle begins all over again. Right. So you have Luthen him smiles. going, exactly. You yeah. have him going to Luthen and say, kill me or take me in. What did you make of that conversation, or that, that encounter at the very end there with Luthen and, and Cassian? Well, I, I was quite convinced when I saw Cassian see Luthen that Cassian knew immediately Luthen is there to kill him. Right. There's no other reason for him to be back there. Exactly. And so he realized, okay, I basically have two choices. On the one hand, I can try and escape this dude for the rest of my life, but I know how good they are. I've been in their operations. I know what resources they have. I'll spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder. Uh, and the Empire on one shoulder and Luthen on the right. other shoulder. Right. And, I mean, as you predicted, he, was, he had read the manifesto. Right. Um, and enough of, had happened. He went back to his father's brick. Um, so his, so his shift had happened. His shift had happened. Right. And so that was, I think he had to tell Luthen first, uh, go ahead, kill me. So that he would get Luthen's attention mm -hmm. and give Luthen time to kind of think over what he was saying. Mm -hmm. So that when he said, or take me in. That was probably the first time we've ever seen Luthen smile that much. <laughs> yeah, the real Luthen, at least. Yeah, right. Rather than uh, yeah. the the persona exactly. that he puts on in the yes. antique yeah. shop. Right. No, he. But that's not the same kind of smile. <laughs> right. Right. No, that was joy. That's your that's customer smile. service smile. I've put mm -hmm. that one on many a time. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. That was a jo that was a smile of joy. Absolutely. Like, you know, and and it made me think of, and I don't know if you had a. We we were a little delayed because of the holidays and getting our episode 12 podcast out. But one of the things that we touched on was earlier in an episode when Luthen is talking to Mon Mothma, he says, have you ever seen a, you know, nobody's ever made a weapon that hasn't been used. Yes. And I had the sense for me, uh, Luthen, it was very happy because he now has a weapon, right? This weapon of Cassian right. has been made, it's been forged, it's been... Sure you know, uh, uh, tempered uh, and sharp, and now sharpened even to a greater degree. I mean, if he could beat mm -hmm. Luthen's security systems on his ship, that is no right. small feat. And if he could get into there and disable that, then Luthen has a very, very deadly tool uh, to use at his disposal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, on the topic of heroes, I think it's also interesting, and you reminded me of this just from what you said, this is a different kind of hero yeah. from what we usually see in the Star Wars series. I mean, usually okay. the Star Wars heroes are more like the, um, you know, the courtly heroes of medieval romance and so mm -hmm. forth. And all of these heroes have been stripped of that entirely. What I see in them is that they are saga heroes. 
Saga here. Say more. Saga heroes. The saga, the Vikings were the the heroes of the sagas. And okay, uh, I think you'll recognize the name Tom Shippey. He wrote yeah. a wonderful <laughs> yeah. book hmm. called "Laughing Shall I Die," hmm. in which he describes the Viking concept of heroism, which was to them, death is not losing; it's how you die. Mm-hmm. You lose if you die poorly. Right. i.e. of illness, old age, or with fear. But if you take your killer with you, or if you set things up so that you will be avenged even after you die, that's a good death, and that's why you can laugh while you die. Right. And I really see that concept of heroism in, in this series, um, which is very dark and not mm-hmm. what we're accustomed to. Um, and I think it's also a result of, you know, we've been seeing the Vikings or some of us have, I haven't watched them, just can't do the violence. The, the um, <laughs> television series on the Vikings and... Um, I watched a couple of seasons, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't go too far. Mm-hmm. I never watched that. I will say Norse mythology is all over pop culture right now. Well, it is. Which is very interesting because it's one of the more sparsely uh, sourced mm-hmm. mythologies, it seems like, in the world. Like, a lot of the sources are incomplete. A lot of them are missing, mm-hmm. and yet it's become this phenomenon that Greek mythology was for decades. It's very interesting. So I don't know if they're pulling from that here in Andor. Maybe not consciously, uh, but it does seem to me that the zeitgeist of what is a hero has shifted, mm-hmm. in part because of the popularity of this. But you're absolutely right. Most, if not all, of the texts that we have are not contemporaneous to the period that they're describing. And most of them were written you know, hundreds of years later by Christian authors. And these are very pre-Christian cultures, although some of the stories are kind of rewritten to incorporate Christianity into them and so forth. But it's, it is not traditionally up to this point what we've, well, I mean, up to this point, these things go in cycles, don't they? Um, but it just occurred to me, and that, of course, is how he dies in the end. I mean, I was listening to somebody's um, YouTube about the fact that you know, they were building the weapon that was going to kill them. Um, right. And I should have claimed internet points for the fact that I knew all along they were working on the Death Star parts. What A lot else, of people cashed in. Yeah. What else could they possibly justify right. what the Empire was doing, you know, sweeping the beaches of Space Miami until literally nobody was left? Well, I don't know if the Empire really needs a justification to be cruel, but uh, they certainly were extra cruel with this. Uh, and it was interesting because at that point we were saying, well, they could just be locking people up to make a point after Aldani. But it's very interesting to see that there was a secondary motivation of, oh, we actually need slave labor to build mm-hmm. our pyramids, basically. It's very reminiscent of, you know, the, the Egyptians, uh, those, you know, the story of the Exodus, etc. Well, but if, you, if they are being consistent with how they're giving us the motivations for people like Dedra, you can't just have an a priori evil empire because they're evil, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that's why they don't show Palpatine at all. And probably, I don't know, they might not show him in the next series either. Because that kind of lends itself more towards the, the Manichaean good versus evil, dark right. and light, which this show is not doing, at least as far as I can tell. So, um, you know, I, I have to think at this phase, there are at least some Imperials who are still trying to represent you know, law and order and the things that poor Cyril is, you know, so obsessed with. <laughs> oh, boy. No, I'm, I'm glad that they 
did this grayer type of motivation where they actually want to get something done. I'm just realizing another parallel with Exodus, though, which is that uh, Moses is the reluctant hero who is, you know, in, in rabbinic teachings, he's supposed to be shy of speech. And his brother Aaron is the one that he basically tells what to say and does all the speeches for him. Mm-hmm. And Kino is to Aaron as oh, nice uh, one. Cassian is to Moses, which nice. is a really interesting tie-in. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is good. So what was the, uh, remind me again, what was your second um, take you had, uh, se- second theme? Well, it connected with Ursula Le Guin and her book, The Dispossessed. Right, yeah. In which she, so she, she posits a society without laws that wants to function as an anarchical utopia. Okay. But the very conventions of no laws and anarchy that they set up become so ingrained in the society that they function as laws themselves. They become every bit as prescriptive as the, you know, do not enter signs. Okay. And it's contrasted with the the two neighbors of this society that there's a patriarchal democracy and there's an authoritarian country as well culture mm-hmm. and those the the anarchists these are the ones the anarchists feel well we're free we can do whatever we want and those other places can't and there's a character who actually goes and sees both societies and recognizes um, those who build walls are their own prisoners. And those who use violence to defeat violence have already lost. Mm-hmm. Along with prisoners harm jailers as much as the jailed. Mm-hmm. So Le Guin was quoted as saying, nonviolent anarchists enable me to think about war, peace, politics, how we govern one another and ourselves, the value of failure, and the strength of what is weak. So I guess we don't actually see any actual anarchic approach in this, in the first season, with the possible I think exception Saul of Guerrera, Well, Saul I, sorry, Guerrera right, is, of course, how could I forget yeah, that? Yeah, Saul, Saul uh, seems to be an anarchist, but we don't see him in operation. I mean, we just have conversation with him, so. Right, 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 so. Um, I hope there's more Saul in season two. I mean, that would be a cool way to explore this theme. Well, I think there will be. And I think, in a sense, that's what Luthen is struggling with, is, you know, you have on the one hand, um, the absolutely rigid authoritarianism of the empire, you have the democracy which is getting ever weaker because it's kind of ossified in these systems that functioned and served at once but are not serving it in the face of the current threat. And then you have these rebels who are clearly operating outside any laws and and so forth, but still have their own laws, their own limitations. They can't Mm -hmm. get together. Mm Mm-hmm. Because at some point, somebody's going to have to take the first step and trust somebody. Did you, what's your history with uh, the Rogue One movie? I adore it. I think okay. it's probably the best of all the Star Wars movies, with right. the exception of the original, which is in a class by itself. Right. So there's that scene in Rogue One then when they're sort of having a council and Jin is like saying, hey, like we got, you know, there's this thing, we know how to defeat it. And the rebellion is fractured and can't decide. And then, so then her and Cassian go off on the, on what is a suicide mission to Mm -hmm. steal the plans. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But right there, you have that point of these, you know, this seeming democracy that can't, because they're sort of a 
uh, a council and they have to sort of decide in joint to be able to commit their forces. And mm-hmm. they can't decide in the face of this overwhelming threat. And it takes that one leader to, you know, in Jin to, uh, mm-hmm. to do some subversion and commit everyone, even though they don't want to be committed. Yeah, it's, it's that final step before the plunge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And there are other people who are acting in very committed ways, but they're being protected by their status. I'm thinking, of course, of right. Bail Organa and, and Princess Leia. Right. So all of that has to be knitted together somehow. And of course, Mon Mothma had been in that world, so she had some connections at that point. Right. But it is this tension of, you know, we're escaping authoritarianism, and yet there have to be some rules that we can right. agree upon. And they're at that sort of I think they're past their storming phase, but they're still at their norming phase before they start the reforming phase, right? if you will. So, um, th- that sort of, we could kind of, I guess, twi- segue sort of over into this conserva- uh, conservation, this conversation about how in a non-democratic society, how value, cultural values shift and flow, and we see some more sometimes we see more traditional quote unquote traditional values become more potent under those kinds of regimes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes well that's best exemplified i think by the daughter yeah who i have gobs of sympathy for she mm-hmm. is just in an absolutely horrible situation given the the relationship between their parents yep clearly she's seeing more of her father than her mother and at that um, critical juncture of sort of 13, 14 years old, right, you know, right. when you're trying to individuate and your brain is still developing and you're trying to discover who you are and you're trying out all these different identities and narratives that you tell yourself mm-hmm. about who you are. And a stage where you're extremely vulnerable to fundamentalism, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, I think because you're looking for answers. You're, you're, yeah, you're striking right. out on your own at the same time you're yep. looking for firm ground underneath your feet. Yep. Her situation has been incredibly chaotic and insecure emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a real dissonance. I mean, f- you know, physically, she's yeah. wealthy beyond most other people on the planet. She's, you know, very high up. Privileged, yeah. Privileged both on her home planet and in Coruscant. But emotionally, it's, it's got to be just horrible. Because Completely even, compromised, yeah. Even if you the, don't have any sense of what the problem is between your parents, or you know, you don't hear all the arguments, right? right. You still can feel it, can feel the emotional currents, and there's yeah. just no firm ground beneath your feet. So along comes the tradition of your people, and there's mm. a text, and there's a mm. group, and you your can peers. have the security of an identity which is shared, mm-hmm. and most important of all, you get right way, wrong way thinking. Mm. Which yep. eliminates so much stress. Uh, it's just so much easier mm. to look at a text and say, okay, here's yeah. what I need to do, and then I'll be safe. And of course, that's just never true. Right. The safety doesn't lie in that kind of, of, of um, system. So there was a point that Mon Mothma, you know, she, at one point she says to Vel, um, you know, you're not following, you, you, you haven't been around, you don't see this that these traditional values are stronger here on Coruscant than they are at home. Yeah. And not only speaking of of teenagers who are maybe seeking the this refuge of some stable thought and and uh, structure, but mm-hmm. adults as well. 
Because as Palpatine is growing in power, visibly and invisibly, and altering the laws of the of the empire of the of the you know in the galaxy, and um, as Marva says, that growing darkness at the center of the of the galaxy, people can look to traditional form, you know, or traditionalism of various forms to find that safety and mental safety and stability, that intellectual surety that somebody out there has the answers right. and I can feel safe as long as I ally myself with this tribe or with this political identity mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. drive this particular kind of car or wear this particular kind of clothing, then I can be safe because the social structures around me are defined and right. are clear and not ambiguous. I don't have the risk of choice. But what you're yeah, saying, yeah, right? Because if yeah. I choose, then it's on yeah. me. Whereas if I follow the law and something bad happens, well, I must have I must have done it wrong, right? Mm. I must have not followed it properly. I must read the text more closely. I must submit myself more. Whatever the you know the themes happen to be. But what you were just saying, David, really made me think about the experience from my personal experience. My father mm -hmm. was a child of immigrants, right? So when you go to a new country, you are made more painfully aware of the practices of the old country. Right. Because they're no longer part of your day-to-day -day fabric, so you can overlook them. And the, my dad was the first generation, and, and oftentimes what happens is they will push against that because they're not of the old country, but they're not entirely of the new country either, and that is made clear to them every single day of their lives. Right. By experiences of the culture that they're now moving in. So, it's not altogether surprising that the family is being more traditional and Coruscant than they would be on their home planet. Mm -hmm. Because on the home planet, you, you don't have to demonstrate it, it's just assumed, it's accepted, it's, it's not anything in particular. But if you're in a strange place and there are strange ways, oftentimes the default is to go back on, okay, well, this is who I am, I better remember who I am, and I better not let this strange, you know, to use again the biblical analogy, you know, you're wandering among the strangers, be sure you cling to your own identity. And sometimes you can do that more firmly in the strange land than you would do in the homeland. And so that's why for Val, you know, she can't believe. Why do you? Why you? Why is she even thinking of picking up this stuff? We know what that's like. We got out of it. And well, for a thirteen-year-old um, trying to figure out who she is, this is this is the one sort of tangible piece she can cling to and say, "This is who I am." In the midst of this strange land, not only in a strange land, but also yeah, in an emotionally compromised household. Absolutely, absolutely. And the irony is, in my experience, if you're taking it in religious context, um, love does not rescue. Love accompanies. Mm. Oh, okay. So, the, the promise of safety from any spiritual tradition, in my experience, and apologies to any listeners who might feel otherwise about this, I think a lot of disillusionment comes when you feel that you should have been protected. This shouldn't have happened. I did all the right, right. things. I followed all the laws. Right. Um, the more rigidly you adhere, the more brittle you are to when things happen. Mm -hmm. And things happen. They will happen. Right. You know, the Buddhists tell us, you know, the one 
a certain experience in life is lost. Right, right. And therefore, you say, well, you know, where was my protector, whatever form that might be, when I was most in need? And the answer is right beside you the whole time. Mm. You were expecting something that was not really part of the deal. Now, maybe your text said it would be, mm -hmm. but maybe that was wishful thinking on the part of those authors. Right. I mean, I, I think, I, I think of family, uh, you know, family members of of adult children who have made poor choices and landed in jail and all the rest of it, and you know, wanting desperately to rescue them from the situation, and knowing mm -hmm. they can't do that, they can be present, they can accompany. Right. They have not abandoned, but right. they can't rescue. Right. They can say, I love you more than anything you could ever do wrong. Exactly. Wasn't well that played, John. just oh. the most wonderful statement? And what I thought of when I heard that was, every single one of us is more than the worst thing we have ever done. And yes, John, forgive me if I'm going to choke up a little here, but <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thing I was thinking about. When uh, when they're having that final conversation, Cassian and Marva, and and Cassian says, you know, I, I I forget his exact lines, but he's basically like, I'm going to worry about you, and it's it's going to be really hard for me to leave. And she just says, that's just love. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it. Like that, it, yeah. it comes with it. That's part of the package of it. That's right. You can't save me that way through that way. You can't save me by having a feeling of oh gosh, like. What is she, you know, how is she doing? Where is she? What, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to save anybody by feeling bad about the circumstances. You've got to take mm -hmm. some action. Don't tell that to my anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what C.S. Lewis said? He said, you know, if, if you never want to be afraid, then don't love anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I, I mean, I, I look back on that last conversation with Marva, which at the time we had no idea, just like Cassie and I had no idea that it would be their last conversation. Yeah. And I... I reflect back even more strongly now about how kind Cassian was to not say, no, I was on Aldani, mm -hmm. this thing that inspired you, and I was there only for the money. Because he could have broken her heart right there. Right. And he chose to be quiet and allow her dream to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is what allowed her to retain that belief and to grow that belief Oof. into the speech that it was at the finale. So yeah. there was this back and forth here. It wasn't just Marva. Mm -hmm. nice and then return yeah. that love back to Cassian by yes. us. Um, Brusso, Boso, what was his name? Brasso. Um, Brasso. Brasso, who gave Cassian his mother's last words. And I love that moment of regret that Cassian went through. He was like trying to explain to Brasso, I couldn't get back. I tried to get yeah. here. I wanted to come save her. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't. And <laughs> I'm going to choke up now. And Brasso just accepts it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't fight Cassian, no, 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 whatever. He just repeats the message, Yeah, uh, allows Cassian to have that remorse and that regret and that mm -hmm. pain, mm -hmm. but then delivers that message that <laughs> I don't know how to process that because it was so subtle and so sublime. That whole interaction was just so beautiful. And, and they had primed it with Cassian going to Clem's brick. Right. Right? And then they right. primed it with Nemec, right? So here we have Cassian being yes. spoken to by three dead people, <laughs> you know, to, to create this wholeness for him. And then mm -hmm. seeing what 
loved ones he has left, B2, Bix, Brasso, and uh, Pac's son, which is, there's some great parallels there. Once they're off and away safe, what does he have left anymore except to go to Luthen? And like, now he's whole. And he has, what, does he have love in his heart to be able to take this fight on? I don't know. I don't know how to 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 map his interior emotional state here in terms of the kinds of actions he's about to take because he's quick of mind he's hard boiled right he's he knows the rules of the game he is uh he sees all the angles like you said when when he sees Luthen when Cassian sees Luthen on the street he knows instantly oh i know exactly what's going on when he kills Skeen he's like hmm he thinks all through the angles and then he there's only one course that he knows that he can walk out of and that's to shoot Skeen, right? So he doesn't hesitate when he comes to his decisions, and he comes to his decisions very, very quickly. So now we have this man who has this, what's going on in his interior emotional life, who is a very deadly and very uh, precise actor. Mm-hmm. I picture that moment as his Viking hero moment. Okay. You know, kill me or take me on. Mm-hmm. In a sense, maybe he feels he has nothing left to lose. Right. And, and he yet, has everything to gain. He has this other life that he can step into. Yeah. And perhaps this is also, to some degree, his means of making atonement, as he sees it, to Marva, mm. to finally take on the cause that she clearly had all her life that, as you were saying, he clearly didn't buy into, but he never broke her heart by telling her that. But I'm thinking of that scene that we were just talking about, where he's saying, I should have, I could have, I meant to, I tried. Um, Elaine Pagels is a wonderfully brilliant theologist, um, mother, experienced the tragic death of one of her children while she was writing about Adam, Eve, and the serpent, about guilt. And she found herself over and over saying, why didn't I, I should have, I could have. Nobody could have stopped this death. And she realized here she was going through the very things that, that she had been writing about for so long. And she said, I realized then that human beings would rather feel guilty than feel helpless. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he was going through at that point right. as well. And he stuck to the guilt because it was easier to accept. Right. Because right. he doesn't take helplessness yeah. <laughs> he doesn't take kindly to helplessness. None of us do. I mean, that's the whole no. Point, he's not right? a helpless person. And and I I remarked about this in the in our episode twelve podcast mm-hmm. that both Luthen and him don't believe in a no win scenario. They are both always looking for the another opportunity to act, another um, another uh, step to take. Uh, even in the, in Rogue One, that's why him and Jin are are so compatible. You know, when she says. We'll take, you know, we'll take the next chance and we'll see what we can get. And we'll take the next chance after that and the next Mm -hmm. chance after that. And Mm -hmm. we'll keep it rolling forward. And that is very much how Cassian also operates. Yeah. You take, you take chance one after there until there really aren't any more chances to take. Exactly. We should uh, wrap it up here. So, uh, Mm -hmm. Marilyn, thank you so much for coming on with us. Um, I think we could probably talk for another two or three hours uh, easily. (laughs) Easily. But tune in for our four-hour Valaquenta podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now you're making me sound like Corey Olson. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, so we're gonna have you in on for the Valenquenta, uh, and then we're gonna keep looking for opportunities when we can bring you in as we're talking about other shows and other uh, other properties and titles. Um, we're looking forward to having you back um, uh, again before too long. That would be terrific, and I look forward to it. Great. Thanks, Marilyn. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, David, now that we've said goodbye to Marilyn, I think it's time that we bring in some other voices. So why don't we get to our listener feedback? That sounds like a good plan. All right, first up, we've got Peter O by email. He says, hey, Luthen being pulled over by the Imperial Constabulary. Constabulary, is that right? Um, was such a fantastic scene. The commanding officer really evoked the worst of the British Royal Navy captain from the Victorian era, as well as perhaps some of the behaviors of some modern police officers. Plus, Luthen escaping was perhaps the best space fight scene I've ever seen. Really love the show. The prison break was amazing. Really love the podcast, loved ROP stuff, Rings of Power stuff. I especially love the Tolkien lore, being a lifelong fan. You've made this Gen Xer very happy. Thanks for the content, Peter. Well, Peter, from one Gen Xer to another, I got you, brother. And I'm here too, the millennial. <laughs> what do you think about uh, Peter's uh, take on the British Royal Navy? That's super interesting. I didn't connect that, um, I, I guess, because I, I don't fear the British. I'm an American and we won. <laughs> no, I think that's a really cool take. I think that, uh, I mean, the British imperial machine was certainly something to be feared for a very long time. Yeah, and I love the fact that we linger on that guy's face for a moment because we know from other previous Star Wars films that Imperial naval officers who don't fare well <laughs> don't have happy endings. Right, right. So he's in a lot of doo-doo. And so is Dudra. Maybe they'll get force choked yes. together. I mean, Vader's got two hands. <laughs> God. One thing I heard uh, somebody else mention that... Um, that uh, when Luthen was in this fight scene, like he never flinched, he never gave a wink or a nod to the camera. He never had any sort of iconic lines. He was just cold and calculating through it. And somebody said that this is very Batman-like and that the uh, Fondor is like the Batmobile, right? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, that's cool. I could buy that vibe. Go, go, gadget, um, laser, sides. <laughs> We've been recording a long time and I'm now punchy. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. All right, John, you want to queue up our next email? Yeah, so Joseph sent us an email that says, following Andor with joy, following your podcast with interest. Is this a haiku? <laughs> it kind of looks like it, doesn't it? Well played and thought provoking. I think it might be. All right. uh, <laughs> my input redroids. B2 emo is amazing and a very deep impression expression of emotional droids. Emo, you said you hadn't encountered another droid with depth of feeling. Well, let us not forget to include K2SO, the repurposed Imperial droid from Rogue One. Heroic, empathetic, sarcastic, and yes, a martyr for the cause. Never underestimate a droid. Yeah, K2SO is a pretty cool droid. He definitely ranks up there. I will underestimate C-3PO because what did, what did he even do? Can, can we just be honest? What did C-3PO do? I think one of the greatest crimes uh, in my book that was committed was to put C-3PO and R2-D2 back at the beginning with Anakin. I, oh, I just yeah. felt that that was like totally ridiculous, complete fan service caca. 
and uh, just really cheapened my enjoyment of C-3PO and R2-D2, who were great comic relief characters um, from the original trilogies. Well, the guy who plays C-3PO, like, basically just plays C-3PO, and I feel like they were just right. like, you know, we got to support this guy. We, he, he's not ready to retire yet. <laughs> they were doing him a favor. <laughs> Eric F. writes in with details on Luthen's timeline. This is uh, some pretty interesting stuff here. He says, hi, guys. Excellent work in breaking down Andor. Well, thank you, Eric. Thoroughly loving both the series and your analysis. Uh, John, I thought we were scrubbing all of the uh, unnecessary You're the compiler, man. I don't have anything to do with this. So <laughs> right into regarding, uh, to David, if, if, if you have an issue with this. Regarding Luthen possibly having a child who is killed during the execution of Order 66, the timeline seems to work out. So uh, Order 66 is the order that was put out to eliminate the Jedi, mm -hmm. basically. Activated the, the chips in the clones, got, right. them, got them to turn on their masters, got them to, you know, kill the younglings with Anakin. So, brutal time. And I think in episode uh, 10, we have um, uh, Luthen saying that, you know, he woke up 15 years ago and, and wrote this equation, you know, uh, and started sort of like his pursuit of rebellion. So with those with that context in order, he says. For, um, uh, Eric says first, although Luthen's age is never specifically stated, Stellan Skarsgård is seventy one years old. So let's assume that Luthen is somewhere in his mid to late sixties. Andor takes place in five BBY, BBY uh, standing for the Battle of Yavin, which is Episode Four, uh, New Hope, uh, which is the first movie in seventy seven. And upon which all Star Wars timelines are sent, think BC and AD in the real world. Order 66 was executed in 19 BBY, which would have made Luthen in his early to mid 50s at the time. Younglings, these are the young Jedis, are required to begin training with low powered lightsabers and other force related abilities between the ages of four and eight, and must be selected by a master by the age of 13. Using those ages, Luthen could have had the child somewhere in his mid-30s to mid-40s and be completely reasonable. Hope this helps keep up the outstanding work. Thanks, Eric. John, uh, you're becoming the Star Wars lore expert here. Uh, what do you think about this? Well, that's a promotion if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've been promoted from casual. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. But Eric, I appreciate that you did the work to back up my, like, just wild conspiracy theories. So uh, thank you uh, for doing that. I think that that would be a very cool way to give Luthen some motivations because presumably it's possible that if he had a son or a daughter who was a youngling who was training with the Jedi, that he also has some kind of force sensitivity, but maybe never uh, got into the Jedi school of, of witchcraft and wizardry. And that he's now one of these gray force users who maybe is less powerful in the force, but is is haunted by this trauma of losing his child to Order 66. And for that reason, has dedicated himself to overthrowing the empire that started it. Um, how would you be if we never found out Luthen's backstory? No, nah, we got to know. I, I think that okay. I don't think that the show is the kind of show that doesn't let you know. I mean, uh, mm. I, I like that they didn't tell me in the first season, but I don't think it would be satisfying if we ended the show without knowing. OK, and that him and you're on record as being 
pro Luthen being a gray cloak force user, like yeah. this moral ambiguity amb- ambiguity uh, uh, of the force, which is something that's been hinted at in some other movies, which I'll really <laughs> rename nameless. Um, but um, that would be an interesting take, uh, and it would certainly give him a straightforward motivation in his pursuit of bringing the Empire down. Well, and I don't want him to be a secret Jedi. You know what I mean? I don't want him uh-huh. to be this yeah. like troubled Jedi. Like, just don't recreate Obi Wan Kenobi for me. Just, right. I, I want him to be independent from the Jedi Order. Right, and I think Gilroy is a savvy enough writer that he's not going to go into that, go down that fan service road. Right, right, exactly. All right, so next up is Aaron O, who has a comment from Episode Eleven. We will probably have the answer to this by the time this can be touched on. However. I have listened to several people and haven't heard anyone talk about this. Marva's death, whether she has actually died or not, is not necessarily the question, but no one is discussing the fact that Marva and Brasso are both very close to Bix. I'm having trouble believing no one is trying to help Bix get out of her situation. Marva is a rebel, and even if she were dying, I would expect her to play a part in helping Bix in the end. I'm curious of your thoughts. Well, I think she kind of did help in the end. Yeah, <laughs> she did inspire the riot and inspire her son to go rescue her. So I, I, I'd give her some credit. Yeah, I'm trying to um, line up the timeline in my head because she was pretty sick by the time that Bix got taken, and I don't know that she would have been physically capable to help Bix in that moment. Although she was looking pretty spry in that hologram message. So I think she probably rallied herself for Mm -hmm. that. Well, wasn't she, didn't she get injured trying to get into the tunnels? She fell. She fell. Right. Yeah. But so, but so I think that was to get Bix, wasn't it? No, because Bix was there helping her. Remember? So Bix and Brasso came in and like Mm. chiding her for, you know, I'm no longer a lore master. (laughs) <laughs> hey, it's still fresh in all of our minds. This is a lot of content. Yep. 12 episodes. I will say, though, that I am happy to see Brasso and B2 and Bix all safely away uh, behind the cro- controls of uh, Jess piloting them out of there along with Pac's son. I was going to be pretty upset if uh, Bix or Brasso didn't make it out. No, I'm really glad that we have the family all together now. And yeah. uh, I wonder if we're going to see them again. That's my biggest curiosity. Yeah, that's a big season two question mark, isn't it? Like, is what, where, how, when, why it, would Cassian meet up with them? Why would we see that? Does Brasso join the rebellion? Does Bix get rehabilitated to a point that she can actually do something, you know, you know participate sort of more fully? What happens to Wilman, you know, Wilman Pack? You know, we've got a, he's, he's, He's a kid who took some pretty serious action, you know? Right, So right. be interesting. And we don't know what's going to happen to B2. Yeah, I think that there's... I don't think that you introduce all these characters just to throw them away in season two. So I'm sure that we'll get some kind of follow-up on them. I just don't know if they really touch base with Cassian again, at least in person. Right. All right, next up, we've got Caroline from London with two emails. Caroline, I'm sorry I, I poked fun at the Brits before. I mean, we did win, <laughs> but I won't rub it in again. We're kind of big in the Commonwealth countries. I mean, we've got um, fans down under in Australia. I know. I got to be careful here. Yeah. We have a special relationship with our our former British overlords. (laughs) You'll be back. (laughs) 
<laughs> First, she says, hey, guys, just to say I'm loving your recaps of Andor. Oh, thanks, Caroline. What a genius show. We agree. The first grown-up Star Wars where grown-up doesn't mean added sex and swearing, but nuanced character and plot development that don't require lightsaber battles at each climax. Keep up the good work. P.S. I wasn't captivated by the White Lotus, but I'm watching it mainly so I can hear your brilliant takes. Oh, that's sweet. You hear that, guys? If you're not, if you're not really a prestige TV fan, you two can still join us <laughs> on the White right. Lotus. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about this. I think that Caroline is absolutely right that they're touching on something that's been missing, which is I think mm-hmm. that fantasy and sci-fi in general got very grimdark for a while. And mm-hmm. I think that in general, uh, this genre of stuff goes in a pendulum where you had this very fantastical PG, but more fairy tale based fantasy of, of Tolkien, mm-hmm. of Jordan, of uh, C.S. Lewis. And then you had the pendulum swing towards Grimdark with Glenn Cook, uh, George R. R. Martin, etc. And now you're seeing people say, well, I don't need a sex scene in every episode. And mm-hmm. I don't need to see ass in every episode. Some mm-hmm. ass. Okay. But uh, not not all the time. And I think that it's great that we're talking about like these mature subjects without needing to sex it up. You know what I mean? Without needing right. to give us some glamour, some showpieces. Instead, we're relying on people to think, which is something that is something that is kind of new to Star Wars in, in mm-hmm. some ways. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. as far as the mainstream stuff. So I'm really excited for it. I think that's a great point, Caroline. Thank you. She comments after episode 12, she says, hey, guys, Andor finale was Brill. Never goes where you think, especially Dedra and Cyril's arc. I realize that Cassian's arc is the same as Rick and Casablanca's. And the episode title is Rick's Road, a smiley face emoji. John, have you seen Casablanca? I have not. Is it Brill? Is it Brill, bro? It is Brill. It is. I'll use all the British slang. Isn't it? I'm watching Dairy Girls right now, and I'm oh, learning what nice. Wayne means and things like uh-huh. that. I love how right. everything's we, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on my Irish stuff now, but I, I, I haven't even mastered the English stuff, so what am I going to do? Have you got knackered? That was one of my favorite Oh, I ones. haven't. I haven't. Yeah. Knackered comes from knackery. That's where they took uh, horses after they finished their usefulness and uh, then put them down and processed them for parts. Uh, and so when you're knackered, you're super tired. Mm. Anyway, that's an interesting comment about Rick in Casablanca. I haven't thought about that. That's pretty cool. I might have to, when I do my um, season rewatch, I will keep that at the front of my mind. Very nice. I'll have to watch what Casablanca before I uh, address this point. It's a pretty deep film, actually, um, Casablanca is. It's, it, it gets a lot of play in a nostalgia arena. Um, but there's actually like, if you can contextualize it and break it down a little bit, there is some really cool stuff that's happening under the surface there. Nice. All right. We've got one more question and that's from Carl 3PO. That's a fun name. Hi guys. Long time bald move fan and first time writing in. Hey, we love bald move fans. Love to hear that. Regarding the questions about why Luthen didn't take credit for Aldani, even with Saw Gerrera or Mon Mothma, I think there is a more obvious answer than pure secrecy. It is going to be very hard to ask the other rebels to negotiate in good faith and be efficient with resources if they think that you have an unlimited source of money in the bank. Yeah. I don't really fault Luthen for this. 
The rebellion is going to be incredibly expensive, and I think he is right to be frugal. I always wondered how they could afford to build so many X-Wings and rebel bases in secret. It mm. does make me wonder, though, if Luthen could be helping Mon Mothma more if he knew more about her banking issue and why Vel didn't suggest the heist money to Mon. Yeah, that's an interesting take. That's a that's a good point. Like if if everybody's looking at Luthen suddenly as Mr. Moneybags, he's going to have a hard time because you got to keep that pipeline running. You can't rely mm-hmm. on that what you've got in right. the bank. You've got to keep a steady flow of money coming in and you need those reserves to be able to make those capital expenditures when shit inevitably breaks or you need to make a new secret rebel base, right? Things that weren't planned for in the budget. Yeah, if Luthen lets us go, he's your friend with a pickup truck. Yeah. Everybody calls him when they need something. That's right. And uh, and you can't let him know you have a pickup truck. If you have a pickup truck, you got to keep it in a garage and never tell anybody you have it. That's right. So, yeah, no, I agree with you on that. On the second point on why didn't Vel suggest that, I think that the issue is that Mon Mothma's issue isn't missing money necessarily. It's that why was the money missing? It's that she already has this blemish on her record. That she can't correct, right. even if she has the money. And so she's anonymizing and she's using this approach of muddying the waters with Perrin and the gambling. And that's going to be her solution rather than just replacing the money. Right. It's a tough thing because if she just goes and throws some money into that account, they're going to look at the deposit dates and they're going to be like, ah, you know, this is sus. And the other thing is she's in a very precarious position. She's publicly anti imperial, she's publicly questioning the motives of the of the emperor or the soon to be emperor. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it's a, it's a much more tricky situation. All right. Well, thank you everyone who wrote in over the course of the season, the email address and or at the will remain active. So you can keep sending us your thoughts and your takes. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we've got a whole dedicated star Wars universe channel set up over on the bald move discord. All the shows are going to have their own threads that are going to be siloed and well-moderated so that um, you can partake. And then we've got some general uh, conversation threads as well for uh, non-spoilery show-related stuff. Um, We're going to be covering, I think it's just going to be a single podcast for Tales of the Mm -hmm. Jedi in December. So because the holiday schedule and when the show ended and the stuff that John and I had going on in our lives... Um, we didn't get a chance to let the season sort of breathe and collect our thoughts and do a nice sort of you know recap. We had to sort of go straight into this. So we apologize if you didn't get your emails in in time. Still send them to us at andoratthelorehounds.com, and then we'll carve out some time on the Tales of the Jedi podcast to be able to review those uh, follow-up thoughts if you have them. All right. Very cool. Well, Again, if you'd like these episodes early and ad-free, you can always go to patreon.com uh, slash the lorehounds. We have our lore master of the month, Samartian. That's our highest tier where you get a shout out on the podcast. Now, I want to thank all the patrons because this helps us support what we're doing and uh, justify to our partners going and uh, talking about Star Wars for a few hours. (laughs) And I I love that we're able to do this. So thank you for supporting us. Again, we have plenty of podcasts coming out and uh, we hope to see you on one of those. Well, John, we were just doing our little inventory for December. We've got like eight or nine podcasts coming out in December. Yeah, yeah. Stick around. Got Tales of the Jedi. We got some Wheel of Time content, more Silmarillion stuff. We've got White Lotus. Keep going. Yep. Yep, we've got plenty of stuff, so stick around and you will be well served. 
And we've got our eyes on some things in January, so we'll keep you posted once we are uh, more clear about what it is we're going to do. But we've got options and we've got ideas. So thank you, everyone, for all of your support. We've really had a good time covering the show. We hope that you've enjoyed our coverage of it. As we said, stick around. But uh, yeah, thank you again for all your emails and thoughtful comments on the Discord and on Twitter. And uh, we're looking forward to season two in 2024. The Andor Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehouse feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies, Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the fourth be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>